This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is not Matt Townsend. Matt Townsend is really? out. Yeah, I know it's shocking to hear. Matt is out sick today, so we are going to soldier on. He is under the weather as a certain presidential candidate also is. I think it had something to do with the BYU football game. Could have been. That That almost made me sick. I was just sick watching both teams continually give the ball to the other team for the whole game, but that's a different story. (sighs) But uh, so Matt's out today, but what we're going to do today is we'll go on with uh, talking about the news like we normally do. We'll have... uh, um, some uh, interviews that we're going to revisit and be able to hit some topics that we've uh, had uh, several months ago but are still uh, sort of timely and topical, and so we'll have those for today. Um, the big news, obviously, Hillary Clinton had a overheating episode. Is that how it's being described, I guess? Yeah. Well, initially, and then they uh, told us what was really going on. Then we find out that she has an actual uh, – she's sick. She has pneumonia. Yeah. So we'll see. They've been hiding this this whole time, which has kind of made the uh, situation worse. We'll talk about that in a minute as uh, as we go on here. Uh, We'll also uh, kind of talk about uh, some of the events leading up to that. I was sitting there watching this happen on Twitter, and you kind of see all the different opinions crash at the same time. And it kind of shows how uh, social media really isn't the the place to find the news sometimes. Right. And end up with a lot of different ideas. And unfortunately, it happened on 9-11. This is a little overshadowed. And it was. It, it truly overshadowed the 15th uh, sort of anniversary of 9-11 and the events that were going on and what, what we really should have been thinking about that morning. But instead, people were chasing around a 68-year-old woman who apparently has pneumonia. And that became the story of the day. <sighs> so we'll continue with that here in just a moment. But first, we'll uh, have the news here with Sadie Nielsen. Hillary Clinton's physician released a statement on Sunday evening saying the presidential candidate became ill at the 9-11 memorial service and had been diagnosed with pneumonia. Clinton left the memorial service at the World Trade Center site early, then was seen losing her footing before being put in a van by the Secret Service. Clinton recovered at her daughter's apartment in New York before walking under her own power to vehicles and announcing, I'm feeling great. In a series of new NBC News, Wall Street Journal polls, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are locked in a tight contest in New Hampshire, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Georgia and Arizona are typically Republican strongholds, but have become closer contests in 2016. Clinton has maintained a national lead, but it has declined to a degree over the last month. Hillary Clinton has a double-digit lead over Donald Trump among female voters, and the Republican candidate has decided to take action. His new women's outreach initiative is called the Trump-Pence Woman Empowerment Tour. But there's nothing that makes ladies feel more powerful than road trips named after elderly men. Trump himself is not playing a major role in the tour, which will instead feature six women with varying ties to his campaign, including Trump's daughter-in-law, Laura Trump. And finally, a charity cyclist accidentally leading 
accidentally ended up leading the pack in one of the world's biggest race events. As the Tour of Britain came through the North Wales, on Wednesday, Roger Armstrong, 56, went out on a casual bike ride. But as he headed out towards the Horseshoe Pass, he ended up in front of the pack of professional riders, saying he had no idea the fourth stage of the race was taking place near his home. I was being passed by some early team cars, and as I was heading down a stretch of road, people were waving, clapping, and taking photos. After a while, fans soon realized, though, Roger was not a cyclist they had come to watch. Wow. Thank you, Sadie. Hey, are you... Your voice sounds a little lower this morning. Are you all right? Oh, you know, there was this, uh, as we were discussing, certain game. And, Which uh, one are you, what are you talking about? Oh, you know, that, that little awful game that we all had to watch where uh, I just happened to lose my voice, you know. So if I sound more like Terry today, you're welcome. Wow. I'm not sure how to take Was that, that a compliment? I'm Abs- not sure. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Wonderful. So you screamed Thanks, yourself Amy. hoarse. I did. Okay. But it's okay. It's not some, like, you're sick, maybe a cold, or... I'm sick in my heart. Okay. Sick because a certain team lost. Yep. Well, they shouldn't have given the ball away. <laughs> there's, the, there's that always to think about. Um, so the story, I mean, yesterday morning I wake up. It's September 11th. I'm fully expecting... Uh, a bunch of specials on TV, a bunch of you know uh, coverage of the the 9/11 memorial that was going on, and there were some. There was quite a bit for a period of time. I read a whole piece in uh, Politico where they talked to all the people who were on Air Force One mm-hmm. and had sort of a uh, running timeline of interviews as to this happened and this happened, and they flew over the Gulf and they landed in Louisiana, and then all these people like media and. Uh, some Congress people were kind of kicked off the plane because it's now turning into we're at war. So then, you know, how do we do, how do we get President Bush back to Washington D.C. and so that sort of an interview or uh, article really interesting to read, quite long. Mm-hmm. So you get kind of those sort of thoughts going on, and then you start. I'm on Twitter just sort of looking at it, and all of a sudden, Hillary Clinton leaves the 9/11 memorial early. She gets walked over to her van, apparently. She left so abruptly that they didn't have the motorcade ready to go. So when she they started moving her, they had to go get the motorcade. So she stood at the curb for like five minutes. With three people holding her up. Kind of holding her up. Yeah. Then there's cell phone videos because as they took off, the media was in a place, they call it a pen. So they're kind of confined in an area. So when Hillary Clinton and her people just moved, the media that covers her couldn't follow. Wow. So she ends up on the curb. All the video we have of this situation of her getting in this van is from somebody's cell phone. You know, the citizen journalist making up the difference after the media is left high and dry. Mm -hmm. And so she gets helped into the van. And then uh, Fox News was the first to report on this. And they're like her shoe was lost underneath the van or something. And they had to pick it up later. But, But she gets put in the van and whisked away. And they say presumably in the direction of a hospital because she felt, quote, overheated. On a so, day that many report, it was about 79 degrees. Now, I saw a report saying it was 79 degrees with 79% humidity. I'm not sure. Like, heat index, I looked it up, said it feel like it was 84 degrees, which isn't, isn't incredibly hot. It's been pretty hot in New York and in the East Coast over the last few days. Yeah. And now it's feeling more, you know, more like the fall, I guess, for a couple of days. But it's, I'm not sure how that all worked into this. But then you find out, as we just heard the news, her physician comes out and says... She has pneumonia. Now, they found Ah. this out on Friday. Friday, the diagnosis actually came down, but the Clinton campaign decided not to say anything. 
So 79 degrees, she's overheating, she's lost a shoe, she's waiting in front of a minivan, and this takes precedence over the 15th anniversary yeah. of 9-11. Instantly, all coverage of 9-11, out the door, because Hillary Clinton is having a, having a medical issue. Now, any other day, I think, I don't know how you balance that, because that is a story. You know, yeah. you have a presidential candidate, she's having some sort of an issue and had to be escorted away. How do you balance that with remembering the 15th anniversary of 9-11? Now, they, they did do both, but it seemed like they really wanted to go talk about Hillary more than talk about, you know, that the events of that morning 15 years ago. Right. In your opinion, though, 15 years from now, are people going to be talking about 9-11? Or are they going to be talking about how Hillary Clinton... Faint, almost passed out, or I think she did pass out, and she overheated on a 79-degree day and had to be taken away in a minivan. I don't know. That's hard to tell. I think in 15 years, they'll want to talk about the 30th anniversary of 9-11 unless something distracts them because the media gets distracted. <sighs> so that's what what ends up happening. But So the Clinton campaign initially said Clinton left because she was overheated. She was resting at her daughter's apartment. Which brings up another issue. If you watch any of the news coverage of them waiting outside of Chelsea Clinton's apartment, we now know the address of Chelsea Clinton's apartment, mm. where Hillary Clinton's grandkids live. Hopefully, Chelsea <laughs> who, doesn't have any enemies. Who allegedly, the reports were, Hillary Clinton was in there playing with her grandkids. That's how she convalesced, as they said. Hmm. And that doesn't <laughs> go over so well either. Well, I mean, if you're going to go someplace and cool off and kind of re-regulate yourself, if you are overheated, you need to cool off, get a drink, that kind of thing. So maybe she went there and her grandkids, so she played with her grandkids for a little bit and then went out. The The problem arises, there was 90 minutes from when she left the park to when she walked back out of Chelsea Clinton's apartment. During those 90 minutes, nobody said anything, nobody knew anything. And so the media just sat around and speculated. Wow. Which is always... The best way to, to proceed when you're trying to cover live news is just to randomly speculate on yeah. whatever report you can get a hold of. Um, what What is interesting is she had been diagnosed with pneumonia on Friday, two days before the ceremony. The Clinton campaign chose not to announce that. And now they announce it when it's convenient to, oh, this is kind of an embarrassing situation. This is why. And it's like, why didn't you announce this Friday? If you announced it Friday and then this happened today, everyone would be like, okay, she has pneumonia. Well, They'd maybe still with... react, but there'd be a, a more plausible story. Sure. Whereas, oh, by the way, here's a convenient excuse. Well, with so many people, you know, thinking about other things, 9-11, maybe that was part of the strategy. While, while people are occupied, let's just sneak this in there. Maybe. I don't know. But the, again, this is, as we're doing right now, speculate. Sure. There hasn't been a lot of discussion. But isn't it fun to speculate? It makes for an interesting discussion. Clinton does not, as customary, have what's called a full protective pool in which reporters are in a constant presence from the moment the person leaves their home until the moment they return. Most presidential candidates have this. They follow, they document what the, what the, the, the candidate does. That's how you get these little conversation snippets of them talking to common people, like when they go into the restaurants and shake hands with people. The media is following them very closely. They're with the campaign all day. They have sort of these insights. And the campaign does it because it kind of protects them in a situation like this 
where something happens, there's not a lot of, a lot of detail, but you have embedded reporters who can report on what was happening. These, these are the facts. But we don't have mm. that. So we, we're left to speculate because they don't do this. But Hillary is claiming that she is feeling better, right? It's what she said. The media uh, outside of Chelsea's apartment, Chelsea Clinton's apartment, this is some of the uh, – I guess the scene is the media was yelling questions at Hillary Clinton as she emerged. There you go. Are you feeling better? Yes. That I'm convinced. So we should then, go with that. Then the problem arises. Well, first off, in that clip, you hear the cameras just firing off like 400 photographs. Of course. All, I don't know why they need to do that. She was just waving on the sidewalk, but that's what they did. She, they also asked her what happened, and Hillary Clinton responded, it's a great day in New York. Wow. Well, they do that all the wow. time. The president, he'll walk out to Marine One at the White House. And you'll have uh, reporters on this rope line, and they'll yell questions at him. But they purposely have Marine One started, because that's how you – so the president can get off the ground, obviously. But the president walks out at that point and cups his ear and goes, what? I can't hear you. The helicopter. It's a great day in Washington, D.C. You know, and then off off he goes. (laughs) I wish I could have used that in class growing up. Like, uh, what is the capital of Rhode Island? Uh, It's a great day in Anaheim, California. There you go. So this protective pool, reporters ride on the campaign plane, tag along on most of the time. It's no guarantee that a true protective pool would have known about Clinton visiting a doctor on Friday or would have witnessed her wobbly departure from the park yesterday. But the hours that lapsed between the episode and the true explanation nonetheless showed how the Clinton campaign sometimes harms itself by not being fully transparent. And also, Donald Trump doesn't have a protective pool either. He doesn't allow media access in this way either. So both candidates are not allowing this sort of access that every other presidential candidate has allowed to help alleviate this sort of speculation and sort of, you know, conspiratorial thought that happens if something occurs on on, on the campaign trail. And yet they both claim to be completely transparent. That's what they try to give you the idea of. Also mm-hmm. this morning Donald Trump has said he will be releasing Um, some medical records here in the next uh, short time, and he feels that it is definitely a campaign issue that Hillary Clinton has pneumonia. We'll see. We'll see if he does it. (laughs) So he said that, I mean, he's released his one-page document from his, uh, as I've talked about before, his doctor that kind of looks like if you've ever seen an Independence Day, there is a researcher, scientist that's at at, uh, Area 51, Brent Spiner, that's played the, by Brent Spiner. That's the actor. He's kind of a kind of crazy looking gray hair, long gray hair. And that's, you know, kind of the way first impression of the doctor that Trump used that gave him a one page clean bill of health, except the doctor's uh, deals with internal medicine, not like mental capacity and not those types of, of issues. And the guy gave him a complete clean bill of health, top to bottom. Everything's great. Hmm. So we'll see. We'll have to get more information. We'll see how that goes here in the next few days to see if Trump does follow through with what he's saying. And he'll release a uh, exam, a physical exam results, I guess is how it was termed. So maybe the next time you and I need a clean bill of health, Terry, we can ask Matt to sign off. For he's us. a doctor, right? He yeah. Can, he can give us a he can talk about our, our full capacity. Are we able to complete our duties in a and give us a, a mental screening give us a full you know physical screening and really help us to know whether we are ready to do this job so we'll uh, continue on today matt townsend again sick we'll revisit an interview we did earlier 
with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Cohen as he talks about the Syrian refugees next next door. It's a campaign issue, something that continues, and uh, Dr. Cohen has an interesting approach to this uh, this issue that is in our uh, political discourse at the moment. So we'll have that coming up next here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, following the bombings in Paris and again in Brussels, fears surrounding refugee placement in the U.S. has surged. Many of the Republican uh, presidential candidates issued statements regarding their hesitancy to allow further refugee placement in the United States. With many of the nation's governors and citizens weary of the perceived threat, the refugee crisis has become quite a hot topic on the debate floor as well. But what are the real risks? Uh, that these refugees pose, and how many Syrian refugees are we actually hosting in the nation? Joining us today is Dr. Jeffrey Cohen, professor of anthropology at The Ohio State University, whose recent article, Syrian Refugees Next Door, aims to answer uh, these questions and other questions relating uh, to the 5 million Syrians that are now seeking refuge. Dr. Cohen, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Thanks for being here. This is, uh, we've brought it up before on the show, but for me, man, this is a hard, hard situation because these refugees, they're fleeing from war, right? They're trying to just live and survive. And um, I guess what they've, what's really happened is they've overwhelmed Europe, really, it sounds like. And um, so now we know that uh, the United States, which, uh, which has, you know, has a I think a duty to help um, to help the refugees. We are we are now involved in bringing refugees to the United States. Talk to us about what are the real numbers? What's really going on with uh, with the Syrian refugee crisis? Right, right. So there is a crisis, no doubt, uh, and there are probably about very close to five million refugees who have uh, fled their native homeland of Syria. Within, the, within Syria itself, there are um, the majority of, of refugees have remained and they've just been displaced and they're, they're within the country. But outside of the country, there are these millions of people uh, searching for opportunities, searching for safety and searching for security. What's really important to remember is out of that total, a very, very small percentage is coming to the United States. Uh, how small? Uh, in 2014, 132 refugees from Syria came, were settled in the United States. Wow. Through, yeah, through last fall, we're talking about just over 2,000. So while we can worry a lot about the total numbers, and that is the total number of Syrians, the amount that are intending to arrive in the U.S. remains very, very small, and there are so many controls uh, there are so many hoops, so so much time spent in uh, vetting these folks that we're not. You know, I, I think we can we can very safely say we don't have to worry. It's eighteen months of vetting, right, right? Right, and and I guess many would say, well, yeah, but it's our government. <laughs> they who knows that they'll even do it right? But in, uh, yeah. you know, in the end, it's still such a small percentage of people, right? That that it the is, idea that is. yeah. Right. 
And you have to, whatever you think I think of the U.S. government, you, you also have to realize that someone is going to put themselves through this, you know, regardless of, of um, the outcomes. Uh, it's a long time. It's a long time. Uh, there are other ways that we need to, if we're going to worry about terror, I think there are other probably more, uh, more important avenues for finding it. Yeah. In fact, um, where was it? In your article, you said there's there's um, seventy seventy thousand refugees have arrived legally right. in the United States right. following federal rules right. from other countries that might even be more dangerous. Sure. I mean, we're we're we we have refugees entering every day. We take in uh, through last year. We took in uh, seventy thousand a year. I believe this year that number is going up to. Huh. I believe it's eighty five thousand. Um, but still, that's a very small number. That's a very, very small number if you figure what the uh, the entire population of the United States uh, is. Mm. You know. Well, and a, you, you, your other statistic that you brought up in your article is refugees seeking asylum in the EU is almost three hundred thousand. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and those are yeah. It's a whole different pressure in the EU. It's a very different thing. Now, one of the things I think that's important is to remember that even even that number is not an overwhelming number for the EU to deal with. the The challenge is timing. I think it's it's hard, and the pressure comes on quickly. But these are things that we can we can deal with. And you know, one of the dangers I see is that uh, in trying to manage these populations. In a sense, what's happening is that they're very often being criminalized hmm. um, or at least treated in a very uh, suspicious way. And that doesn't build bridges. That kind of breaks breaks bridges and builds walls, which which become really dangerous. Yeah, we've talked about that before on the show where we, we don't – that if we criminalize them or, or see them as dangerous, then we don't integrate. We don't bring them into our communities and make them a part of our community, which would ostracize them and actually further the likelihood of – Right, I, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. is this a um, – I mean honestly, Europe is the one that's, that's taking a lot of this though because they're – I mean uh, Germany, for example, I mean, they have so many more that they're allowing in, bringing in. How do we – is this the way to, to help Syrian refugees? Would it not be healthier to – create, I don't know, safe cities or camps near Syria so they stay close to home and near their culture and their mm – -hmm. is, that, is that happening? Well, there are camps. I mean, there are camps throughout Jordan, camps in Lebanon, uh, camps in Turkey. Um, there are communities in those countries. Um, the population is spread really across the region into Egypt, Libya, um, uh, and in these places, you find some camps, but the figures from the uh, UNHCR—that's the—that's um, the Commission for Refugees at the UN uh, at the UN—estimates uh, that only about 10% of the refu of refugees are living in those camps. So somewhere around 490,000, mm. uh, so, uh, and so on. Um, and those camps have a lot of – there are a lot of challenges in those camps. Uh, there are a lot of challenges for people that are not in the camps but living um, 
you know, as refugees in a place like Turkey, in a place like uh, like Iraq and yeah. Lebanon and Jordan, uh, part of it has to do with the laws that really limit the ability to access jobs. Part of it has to do with the fact that you've just, you know, you you are fleeing, you are running away from an incredible level of violence that has, you know, destroyed your homeland uh, and destroyed education, destroyed. Um, Health care destroyed the the fabric of the civil fabric of of society, and that's that's a prof- you know I don't think we can even imagine how profoundly traumatic that must. Oh be, no, you know yeah, um, and and those are parts of the challenges and the work that's being done to try to address the the civil war is really really important in that light because that's. That's part of where the solution is, is. It has to come. It has to come in creating a uh, a place where people don't have to leave. You know, dealing with the challenges that are on the ground that have caused the civil war. And those are those. You know, that's a complex thing, of course. Mm. Um, that one of the things to remember is that the refugees that we're talking about are not involved in this stuff. Yeah, they, they're fleeing. They want away. Um, they want to get yeah. away. I mean, that's a sign. I mean, I guess, you know, there was always the talk about, uh, you know, ISIS, you know, in, involved people that were also right. coming across the border with the same group. But, right. but you know, the dad carrying his little girl um, yeah. and running and doing everything he can to get out is a pretty good sign that he just is not involved. That's, that's absolutely right. And the number of people, I mean, nobody in the United States has that is – you know, no Syrians have been arrested, deported, detained in any way. And I'm not entirely sure, but I believe the number, uh, if you look across the, across the world at the population, I believe it's three people. Hmm. Total. Um, have been arrested. Out of Total. five million. Yeah, out of five million. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, part of what we need to do is try to, I think, uh, move the dialogue away from one of fear and towards one that says that that's focused on the life these folks are trying to lead. Yeah. And, and are running toward like they want they want the same things we want, right? Exactly, exactly. They just want their family, they want safety like you said, they want opportunity. Right. right. It's it's you know when a when a small child can say, you know, I just want to go to school. That's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Let's take a break. Um, Jeff, I want to come back and continue the discussion, find out once they're vetted from the government, how then they are integrated into um, the United States. I know a lot of charity agencies help with that as well. And uh, get into that. And maybe if we have time, talk a little bit about other refugees, refugees from other countries like even Mexico and other places that I know you've studied and worked on. We'll take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Cohen. He is a professor of anthropology at The, at the Ohio State University and uh, has a research focus on migration and refugees. Um, a great resource, folks, to help all of us understand what's going on. Are these refugees a real threat? Um, or is it time that we open up our heart and uh, become good Samaritans and just take care of these people and help them have a successful life. Stick with us, continuing to help you see the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Wow, it's a tough uh, it's a tough discussion about um, the Syrian refugees. There's so many people terrified, worried, concerned about these refugees coming into the United States. They're going to take over. They're going to form, uh, you know, they're going to form these communities that we're not going to be able to control, and eventually they're going to take over and and attack us. Is that is that plausible? Is that the real threat here? Um, or is that just fear and fear-mongering? Uh, joining us today is Dr. Jeffrey Cohen, who is a professor of anthropology at The Ohio State University, researches uh, specifically, um, his research is focused on migration and refugees, economics and development, nutrition and research methodologies. He's talking to us today about an article he wrote in The Conversation where he talks about the Syrian refugees next door. About 5 million Syrian uh, Syrian refugees have had to flee Syria because of the war and, and other infighting, and they're just trying to find a home. And a very small percentage of them, 2,000, I think, last year, and um, maybe up to 10,000 in the next year or so, I believe, are expected to come. Dr. Jeffrey Cohen, welcome back, and thanks again for being with us. Sure. It's, it's really nice to be here. You bet. Is, is that number accurate that, it, you know, maybe within the next year or so or two, we'd have maybe 10,000 Syrian refugees coming to the United States? Is that the right number? Yeah, the administration um, is asking to relocate um, 10,000 additional refugees, and this would be in addition to the regular numbers of refugees that uh, that the country is, is resettling. Hmm. Which is a, like last year was about 70,000. Right, um, right. But again, it was it was a very small number of Syrians in that group. Right. Talk about um, – so when when the Syrians are vetted and you t- it's about an 18-month process, they're vetted by the U.S. government. Right. Eventually when they get here, they then, they then I guess, um, are, are entrusted into nine or so refugee agencies, which are, sounds correct. more like church, church or charities, uh, church organizations or charities that then help integrate them. Is that how it works? That's, that, that's correct, yes. Yeah. So there are nine uh, different agencies that uh, some of them are focused specifically on, on groups. Um, but those, one of those agencies is going to help in the settlement process because it's not an, it's not an easy thing. No. Um, and it's certainly not one where um, I, don't, I don't know, you know, the image of kind of throwing a dart at a map. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's nothing like that. I mean, these are, there, are, there are plans of where to put people uh, and how to put people in, into places and then how to support folks as they're coming in uh, from, from simple things like you know, how do you hook up your utilities to more complex things like learning English? Yeah. So there's all kinds of process that, that, ha- that, that, are to, to, that, are, that are managed. And I've seen stories on the news recently about even just getting used to our food and right. how to eat spaghetti. Right. And, right. Or how to go to a grocery store. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, again, if – and the language is a barrier in and of itself, but the culture is a barrier – and if we don't incorporate them, if we don't, as citizens, welcome them into our community and be a good neighbor with them, then we have the potential of creating kind of an ostracized group. That's, a, that's absolutely correct. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I really wrote this piece, uh, this and, and, and some others, is that, that, that goal. I mean, you know, we're at a point where uh, 
the danger is, is I think, much greater if we don't work to, uh, to come together on these issues. Yeah. Now, how is it uh, being received? I mean, it sounds like, you know, um, we get a lot of pushback from, it sounds like, the GOP, um, especially the some of the, not the GOP, but the, some of the, the candidates. Trump has talked about it. Cruz, I think they're pushing back on it. Um, but what are the governors saying overall? So there are 31 governors who together have um, put out a statement that they will not uh, accept Syrian refugees. And in fact, the, there's no real... Um, um, there's nothing to that. It's a federal. It's a. It's a federal program, uh, or it's a. Fe- you know, placement is a federal issue, not a. Not a state hmm. issue. Um, but there is a lot of opposition. Um, there was a, a a poll that was conducted, and 53% of Americans uh, agreed that uh, we shouldn't be settling refugees uh, of any kind. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so it's tough. Uh, on the other hand, nearly a third of the, the folks um, surveyed said that uh, they, were, they were very supportive of proceeding with uh, bringing in 10,000 additional Syrians. The um, governor of the state of Utah, Utah uh, mm-hmm. Gary, Governor Gary Herbert, uh, you, have an, you have a statement from him in your article that right. he, where he recently told the NPR, we don't have terror imported to Utah. We don't want to have terror imported to Utah. But we were just a little bit reluctant to use somebody's religion as a defining description of who can come into a state and who can come into our country and who cannot. Right. I, mean, I think that's very powerful. Right. The minute you're saying because of a religion, because you're Muslim, you're, right. you can't come in, that's a, big, that's a big issue. We even had Governor Herbert on my show, and he also uh, mentioned the fact that there's a Christian side to this. So, so be safe. Make sure they're safe and then be Christian and love them and, you know, child of God them. Um, the irony of all of this is it's we, – we kind of just, I guess, go more by our fear than maybe just what's practical. These people are coming and they're even going to be coming to those states. Um, we may as well, you know, do it right. Right, right. And I think it's important the way he started that statement is we don't want to have terror imported and – that's an important. That's an important point. We're not importing terror. Yeah. Ever. Nobody, nobody coming in as a refugee is coming in because they've somehow advertised, "I want to come in and and you know wreak havoc right. in your country." I mean, it's just not going to happen. And it's important that the governor says this and starts by saying, "We don't want to have to import terror," and that we're not, and that we're you know we're looking beyond religion. Um, when you have candidates running for office and you have people in office who are saying things like, you know, these people are dangerous um, or really misrepresenting the population, it, 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 it puts in seeds of fear that are very hard to respond to. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's important that we have people uh, in the government speaking out against those sorts of statements. This really this okay. This is the cuz there's the, that's the difference, right? Between if a terrorist wants to come in, he could come in on a work visa. He could sure. come in over illegally over a border. He you know, could sneak in um, but the refugee is coming through the front door with 18 months of vetting and is saying I am begging for a better life. Exactly, exactly. And they've got you know, a group like Church World Service 
or International Rescue Committee or, you know, there's just so many different groups out there mm. that are behind them and working with them. So, again, they're not coming in without some sort of support network. Now, is this – we hear about the Syrian immigration and, or, and refugees. What's going on with, with Mexican migration? You've studied that a lot. You've done a lot of work down in Mexico because that too, it almost has a similar tenor where we're, we're afraid of them coming in and destroying our culture. And again, the politicians have been saying similar things. What's going well, on there? For years. Yeah. For years. It is. It's, it's – um... You know, there are similarities, there are differences. Mexicans are not refugees, uh, or at least very few of the Mexicans who are coming up into the United States are coming in as refugees. There are some who do come in and they're asking for asylum and they're asking for security, uh, and they have really important uh, reasons for those, for those requests. They're, they're not made up. Um, but like the Syrians, the Mexicans coming to the United States are not dangerous people. You know, they're not terrorists. They're not, um, you know, Donald Trump portrayed them as criminals and right, rapists. rapists. Yeah. And, you know, they're just, they're not. Uh, someone asked me the other day about that. And I said, you know, if somebody wants to be a criminal, they're probably do a lot better if they stay home. <laughs> true. huh? <laughs> it's true. So, um, you know, so they're, so they're just not. In fact, the majority, and I mean the overwhelming majority of people that I've met in my research, and this is over 20 years of working on the question of migration between Mexico and the United States, the overwhelming majority of people I've talked to are people who are up here mostly because they see an opportunity to uh, make their lives or the lives of their children and family better, or they're really trying to get away from something that's just not working. Mm. Uh, and, the, and again, they're not coming up to break laws. They're coming up to become a really uh, just a part of our nation and, and what we're doing. Do they really um, fulfill a work uh Need like we always hear that there's just certain jobs that people won't do. I mean, is that a real? Is that real? That that or is that just racism? I you know the terrible thing is I think it's both. Hmm. Uh, depending on what statistics you want to read, you can see where certain populations are going to come in and perhaps. Um, move into jobs that that you know citizens of North American citizens should be taking. On the other hand, you can say it's just blatantly racist, and there's lots of work that actually shows how immigrants coming in from places like Mexico are in fact making uh, making work for everyone, mm. uh, doing things. Most of these are folks that are paying taxes, paying social social security. Uh, the overwhelming majority, again, of most of the immigrants that are coming into the United States from Mexico uh, are doing so with the thought that, that, that they're coming in uh, with uh, legal paperwork behind them. Uh, and this is because a lot of them are very abused in the process, and they're, they're misled uh, by people who are doing things like selling them um, uh, inappropriate numbers, Social Security numbers, for example. Um, but, you know, they're generating literally hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue. Mm. Uh, you know, and any, Im any immigrant who comes in who's living in a place, whether it's in Southern California or right here in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, is doing things like paying rent, buying, paying for utilities, paying for transportation, right. 
you know, and all of that, all of that, those are the dollars that are, are generating uh, other jobs, other opportunities, going into community coffers, paying for schools, paying for programming, paying for roads and lights and so on and so forth. So they, again, there, there just needs to be a, a sense of respect and and I guess too, and legality. Let's make sure we keep it as legal and understand what's happening, and yet respect and not just disavow who right. they are. Respect's very, very important in this process, I, I believe. And the issues of legality are also absolutely important. Uh, part of the reason we have a large community of undocumented people, and this includes much more than just Mexicans, right, um, is that. These are folks that generally you, employers don't have to necessarily worry so much about. Um, you know, these are people that will, uh, because of their, the questions surrounding their own status, may not ask a question when, say, their, their paycheck is short hmm. at the end of a week. Uh, or uh, people who, you know, aren't getting, say, benefits um, just because they don't need them. You know, they don't need to be paid them. Yeah. Um, yeah, they can't. They can't expect them. Right, right. But they so, get, so yeah, that becomes a problem. Right. You know? Well, it's also yeah. usury, right? They're being used. Right. Right. right yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think that you know one of the challenges here too is that it's easy to focus on the on immigrants. It's easy to focus on refugees. Um, you know, as we've said, talked about the the Syrians are not the problem. The civil war is, in fact, the problem. Um, you know, and, and so very often, rather than talking about solutions, focusing in on our own fears uh, and focusing on how those fears uh, may play into the, these populations, I think is, 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 is a dangerous, dangerous thing. No, I think it's great advice and a warning, I think, for all of us. Dr. Jeffrey Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate your great insights you. on this. Sure. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. You bet. Again, Dr. Jeffrey Cohen from uh, The Ohio State University uh, and the author of that article, Syrian Refugees Next Door, at, uh, you can find on theconversation.com. Great insights, folks. Again, man, let's get our hearts open. It doesn't mean we can't be safe. Let's be safe and good Samaritans. Let's be safe and loving, caring human beings. Remember, every one of your parents or grandparents at some point, they were an immigrant. They were a refugee. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you think about it, it's, it's it, this isn't a new issue, right? This is this is a this is an old issue. Two million two million immigrants or refugees came from Vietnam. Two million, and we're talking ten thousand here from Syria. So, but Donald Trump is convinced that you know can't let Muslims into the country. And then the argument: it, it only takes one. Sure. It only takes one, and right. then we have ourselves a, a terrorist. But we've talked about it over and over on the show. The terrorist is more likely to get here just statistically on a school visa and overstay his school visa. That's how he'll get here. 
Now, I might or be naive. sneak across the border of Canada. I might be naive, but trying to think that they're going to walk from Syria to, I guess, one of the areas is we do talked about before, they go to Greece. Yeah. They get on these boats that we've seen on the news. And then they sink. And if you make it across that channel, right. if, then you move on from there and then walk into Europe and up through Germany and then somehow figure out to get from Germany to the United States. There's more, there's no. better ways. Right. There's easier ways. Right. No, yeah. If they're going to sneak into a country, it's going to be Europe. Somewhere, yeah, it's not. They're not gonna. And like you said, they could, sneak in over here. There's easier ways to get into the United States than trying to walk across Europe. Right. This is again. So if you're if you're gonna go with Trump on this, forget the whole "don't let Muslims into the country" thing. That's just a bad idea. Just go with the racist wall, because <laughs> that is probably the best way to keep anyone from sneaking into the country. Apparently, according to him, Personally, I went to the Wharton School of Finance. I was like, I'm like a really smart person. He's really smart. He's really smart. The reality is, again, it's the visas that overstay. Those people, that's where hundreds of thousands are coming in. Mm -hmm. And then we just don't track them down. And a lot of that has to do with our immigration enforcement and how people just sort of fall through the cracks when it comes to documentation and record keeping. You can't. So who do you trust? You can't trust the politicians, those in, in power, those trying to get into power. So obviously you just trust the media. Which apparently no one does. What do you mean? Just 6% of people say they have a lot of confidence in the media putting the news industry about equal to Congress. Wow. And well below the public's view of other institutions. This from a uh, recent polling. That like, really, think about it. What what media personality do you trust? None. I don't even trust myself. I trust some of the more of the nightly news because they're just reading the news to you rather yeah. than stopping to tell you what they think about it. Right. But even them, it's it's all... You it's, know, it's whatever angle, whatever shade of gray well, they want to share with you. And I think it's directly correlated with how the money has to be made. So the more the more this becomes a market-driven – media becomes market-driven and you have to do what you have to do to make money, we're going to trust them less. You know, same reason you don't just trust a used car salesman. Stick with us, folks. We'll be back in about five minutes with more tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Matt Townsend is under the weather. This is Terry South. I'm the producer of the Matt Townsend Show, joined by Jeff Simpson, the well, you're the you're like the keyboard pusher, the board button pusher of the Matt Townsend show. Well, I do know which buttons to push if that's okay. what you're implying. Do you, do you resent that sort of title, button pusher? No. Would you rather? Uh, I mean, sometimes the garbage man will be called a sanitation engineer. Do you want a more so, highfalutin name? I'm sorry. Did you just? Did you just compare me to the garbage man? No, I was just trying to think of an example of where there's a common name of garbage man, and then other people call them sanitation engineers. You know, which maybe I know garbage is man is okay, because I can take out the trash in a way, but I can press the button that turns off your mic, Terry. Sorry, I didn't mean for this to seem... But then I have a button, I can turn it back on. <sighs> let's, let's get back on topic, oh, I'm sorry, Terry. Sorry, 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 sorry. I... 
that if that was mean spirited, I apologize. Would you like a different name when it comes to your job? Because um, we could work on that. Almighty one. Board operator is that? No. Sound engineer. We'll go with Almighty one. Almighty one. Ah, that's a little too high. Maybe you went high. I went low. Either way, today is September twelfth. We always have things of the day. Most of them are irrelevant and funny, but this one's interesting. Chocolate milkshake day. Started out as an alcoholic beverage. Didn't know if you knew that. No. Then it became more universally accepted when they removed that and just made it chocolate milk. Favorite shake flavor, Terry? Depends. I'm not really, I have my favorite. It's like, I'll, I'll, I'll look at the menu and go, oh, let's put a couple of those things together. See how that works. Chocolate banana. Okay. With real banana. It did say, uh, when with the invention of the electric blender in 1922, the texture of milkshakes changed from smooth, thick and creamy to a frothy, airy consistency that's loved today. That's another, That brings up another good point. Do you prefer a shake that you have to eat with a spoon? It's so thick, you eat it with a spoon, or you want to drink it through a straw? I had one so thick the other day that uh, the straw was useless. In fact, you pulled the straw out, and it brought the entire contents of the cup with it. It broke the spoon, I bet. It was like a straw sickle at that point. But you could just, it was nice and creamy and go in with the spoon, no problem, but it was so thick that sure. the straw was useless. I'm a, I'm a straw guy. Otherwise, why not just eat a bowl of ice cream? It's kind of my point, but it was good. Liked it. It was a, uh, something that we, I don't normally get, so it was a little, little treat on a, at the time it was a summer day. Now it'd be kind of chilly. It's also video games day. Do you play video games? I used to be really big into video games, but the more advanced the games get, the less into them I become. Yeah. I had a few. I, I mean, I started with the original Nintendo that had like six buttons. Okay. And now my PlayStation 3 has 15, I think, 16 buttons on the controller. Did you ever have like the running pad or the power glove? No. The joystick, uh, the, uh, what was that giant, the console with the... The joystick. joystick. I had on that it. one. That was the okay. NES Advantage. I had that one. Okay. But my parents didn't really love me that much, so I didn't have the extra auxiliary toys that I always asked for for Christmas. I wanted the power glove, right? I wanted the running mat so I could do the Olympic Games. But my parents said that I would be better invested in my education. What? And I didn't agree as <sighs> a 10-year-old kid, but regardless, we're here today. So how did you, when you had a game that wouldn't function correctly, how would you remedy that? What with, were some of your remedies? With the Nintendo, you would uh, blow on the cartridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you would blow inside the actual game unit itself, not the, not just the cartridge, but the Interesting. console. Okay. Um, there was you, You'd tap it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'd, you'd loosen up whatever the obstruction was in the game. None of this actually worked, but I don't know. I, I did we play... We thought it did. We always oh, thought it did. I played... There was a game called Tecmo Super Bowl, and I played that game until it fell apart. The we, game collapsed, it corrupted, it wouldn't even start. I played it so much. Wow. Love that game. We would also take a Q-tip and mm-hmm. put a little dab of uh, alcohol on it, not the kind that you drink, obviously, but and then just rub it on that little, the chip part that sticks yeah. out of the cartridge. The connector, yeah. Anything you can do to clean those things, they got dirty. Yeah. They collect a lot of dust. So 
Good times. Uh, so Chocolate Milkshake Day and Video Games Day, we'll continue on with that. We'll uh, first get the news from Sadie Nielsen as we progress here. Donald Trump claimed that he took $150,000 after 9-11 to be used in recovery efforts, but a new report from the New York Daily News confirms that his account is not true. Records from the Empire State Development Corporation show that Trump requested the money for rent loss, cleanup, and repair, and not to recuperate money lost in helping people. The program was initiated to help businesses recover, not to reimburse people for charitable work. During an address in Washington, D.C. on the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, President Obama emphasized the United States' resilience as a nation. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, he said, citing scripture. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the table of your heart. The president also emphasized that America's strength lies in its diversity and enemies should not divide us. And an update on Hillary Clinton. Uh, Her San Francisco fundraiser Monday will continue with her teleconferencing into the event. Donors were told last night a last-minute fix after the Democratic nominee canceled her trip to California this week because of, of a pneumonia diagnosis. So hopefully she gets better. And finally, a desperate college student's beer money sign was captured on ESPN that led to more than 2,000 donations using person-to-person payment app. I saw this. Venmo. Very funny. The sign was captured in the background of an ESPN college game day, a pre-game show that broadcasts from a different college campus every week. This one was held at the University of Tennessee, where a dairy student, Sam Crowder, held a sign that said, Hi, Mom, send beer money, and included his Venmo account handle, and amused viewers began looking up Crowder and started chipping in for a round. What hmm. a lucky guy. Don't know wow. how much he ended up getting, but it was apparently, by reports, quite a bit. Probably enough for more than a round, Who I'm knows? Guessing. Who knows? So, thank you. You know, I used to live in Seattle, and uh, people that were on the streets holding up signs looking for money, they would be very honest in their efforts. They would just hold up a sign that says, I need money for beer. Right. One time there was even a guy who just held up his hands with no sign... And he got a lot of attention that way. It just was pantomiming holding up a sign. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if that actually works for people as they stand out with a sign asking for help. It, I'll see it, people it occasionally give them money. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever whatever gets you ahead, I guess, with the, uh, the gentleman with his sign and people giving him money. Uh, the big story of the day, obviously, we talked about this last hour. Uh, Hillary Clinton left a 9-11 memorial yesterday. Uh, saying she felt overheated. There's video of her being helped into a van, multiple people. She went back to her daughter's apartment. She rested up, probably cooled off, got a drink, and then walked back out. Clip two. Hold on. Oh, sorry. So uh, while, I'm, while I'm pulling this up, <laughs> is it possible that uh, she had some kind of a double? There was uh, some talk of that. I know you mentioned it earlier uh, before the show. You mentioned it briefly. I saw some things online saying, do we really even know if that was her? Because all you saw was the back of her head. Because the person with the camera phone, as they were loading her into the van, was shooting from behind. And so you saw kind of the back of her head. So it wasn't really clear. But I guess all reports, yes, that was her. She later walked out of her her daughter's apartment. The media all over the the sidewalks waiting for her to come out. And they, they said this. Usually, though, if you're using a double, it's because you want to be in two places at at one time or you want to be safe. But it seems like this would be a negative way in which you would use a double. She could have had a late fantasy football draft. 
that she was trying to get in on. Okay. ESPN's fantasy football service crashed yesterday. Ooh. About midway through the uh, morning set of games that they have, and so people were just unglued. First day of the year, you're trying to figure out your teams, and the whole service crashes for about four hours. By the end of the day, they finally got it back up functioning at full full speed, full strength, but it took most of the day, and people were not happy. Do you do any type of fantasy football, fantasy baseball, no. any of those? I used you to, have no but fantasies. I used to, but it, it just became so... Uh, just laborious to try to stay on top of it, and you know, oh, I got to go pay attention to the waiver wires who got cut today. And I used to do baseball, but that's even that's even more insane. Who was on your team? It, I, I would just do a random draft with the uh, the free drafts that they offer on these services, and you just sit free, and they just populate your team, and you move on. Because I, I more just wanted to know the names rather than you know chasing down someone who I thought was specifically good. So sure. just time-wise, preparing for these, they're insane. So maybe that's what Hillary Clinton was doing. Maybe she was doing a fantasy draft and had a double. I doubt it, but, you know, it's a, it's a possibility. <sighs> but uh, yesterday, as I was saying, Clinton, had this happens, the media starts speculating because there's no real information out there because it was 90 minutes of no, no contact, no word from anybody about what was happening. And I just saw, like, the Drudge Report was really pushing the hashtag pray for Hillary pray for Hillary. I think she's going to die. You know, it was one of the tweets and you're like, what is happening? What are we doing here? You know, she has, they came out and said later that she has pneumonia. They found out on Friday, they chose to keep it, to keep it secret, not really share it. And that's, that's where the problem comes. She has a problem. If they announce it, then all of this is better handled instead of now it all just sort of comes out all at once and looks like you've been hiding it the whole time. Well, Terry, she's 68 years old. Isn't it it's not I don't feel like it's too much to ask for a 68 year old to have perfect health. Do you? Yes, I kind of do. <laughs> uh, Donald Trump says he will release his. Uh, let's see here. The Republican candidate, Donald Trump, said he considered Clinton's health a campaign issue and said he would release the results of his own physical exam this week. So we'll see what that happens. He's 70. We're talking with two senior citizens here. I think we need to to find out what their health status is. Can he throw in his tax returns with those? The tax returns need to come out also. Yeah. Let's just just go out on a limb and say both of those need to happen, and they need to happen soon. Um, moving on to other news. We occasionally do the dumb criminal, and there's all kinds of things that happen with people that all across the, the country, bad mistakes, bad things happen. This happened in Washington, the state of Washington. A woman... They learned by she, she pocket dialed can be more than just embarrassing when a 911 operator heard about her illegal activities. Police chiefs, the police in the area said that a woman apparently accidentally dialed 911 from her pocket and operators heard the very angry sounding suspect talk to a man believed to be her boyfriend. The woman was heard discussing scratch tickets and illegal activities leading officers to visit where the call was originating from. When officers got to the area, she she could be heard saying that she saw the police and would not be going to jail. She was uh, seemingly clairvoyant, as they said, but that prediction was wrong, police wrote. The woman, who also allegedly tried to give police a fake name, was booked on an outstanding arrest warrant for trafficking in stolen property. So, have you ever pocket-dialed, Jeff? You know, I don't know if I've ever done that, but I think I've probably sent text messages to people that right. shouldn't have gone to them. My wife is purse-dialed. Purse-dialed? Um, she's dialed me, but she's also done the where you know phone calls over, so you just drop the phone in your, and she yeah. drops it in her purse, doesn't disconnect it, 
and I'm just assuming it's going to drop, and I'll just sit there and listen to her for like five minutes as she's singing along to the radio or whatever, you know, and then I finally drop it. But See, now, purse dialing I can understand because women – I don't want to say women in general, but Ooh. my wife especially has a ton of things in her purse, and right. trying to find something in there is just impossible. So I could see rummaging up against the phone and pressing all sorts of wrong buttons. Now, my father has FaceTimed me multiple times. Really? For his birthday in July, we my brother got him a uh, one of those iPod touches. Mm-hmm. Now it's an it, iPod, iPod touch? touch. It functions oh. right. It has FaceTime. It does all that. And and so my, my father, as he's trying to figure out, I think he was trying to text. I'm not sure, but ends up he starts FaceTiming me. And so I answer. I go hello, and then he like you know hangs up real quick. Like oh, I don't know what that was. And so my father's kind of pocket dialing, but it's with video calls, which is different, too. Basically, everybody needs to act as if they're in broadcasting and you're always on. You're always on. Always on. Never say anything inappropriate. That's just a good rule to live by. As this woman basically admitted to all sorts of illegal activities, so they just drove over and arrested her because they already had all the evidence they needed. Is that binding, though? I don't know. Because do you have any 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 uh, sense of do you, any I guess perception of privacy when you just make a, a random phone call that you're not intending on making? You mistakenly phone call somebody. Can you use that recording against them? I don't well, know. I know that when I am telling somebody close to me about all of my illegal activities, I I expect that they're not going to go blab about it to somebody else or that nobody else is listening in. So you would hope. You would certainly hope. But uh, so as we're moving on today, Matt Townsend again out sick. We're going to revisit one of his interviews that he did uh, a few months back with a woman named Kelly Brown. She wrote a book called Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up. Interesting conversation about how to make the transition and take on responsibility as a grown-up. You and I better listen, Terry. Yes, this may be something we really, really need today. So we'll be back here in just a moment on the Matt Townsend Show with Kelly Brown. Listen to your teachers, but cheat in calculus. Tell the truth, regardless of the consequence. And every day, give your mama a compliment. Take your girl to the prom, but don't get too drunk hanging out the limo. Slow dance with Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Little Macklemore and Ryan Lewis teaching us about how to grow up. Who else could teach us how to grow up but our next guest? You know, it's it's an ever-challenging endeavor, right? When you got to leave house, leave your house and... You know, take on your own bills, maybe pay your taxes for the first time. Growing up is a hard thing to do. And our next guest, Kelly Williams-Brown, is the author of the book Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps. She joins us now live from Portland, Oregon. Kelly, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. Great to have you. And this is a, a fun book, Adulting. How to Become a Grown-Up. Help us understand, why would you write a book on adulting? And and that word, is that even a real word? Well, uh, it wasn't a word until I I made it up, um, (laughs) to the chagrin of my English teaching mother. Um, And it it came from sort of my habit of just making jokey words, making making verbs out of nouns, you know, like, oh, I'm really busy bridesmaiding this weekend. (laughs) Um, 
And, uh, you know, the, the reason that I made it, though, is that I found that so many people don't actually feel like they're an adult, even maybe if they're in their 40s. So, yeah. Yeah, and for young people, you know, it, it, that, that line is getting blurry. You know, legally you're an adult at 18. You know, if you're going to school, then after you graduate, that's the first time you're really out and about on your own. So, you know, my argument is, is maybe it's not something you are or aren't any, you know, one point in your life, like now you're an adult, but rather it's the process of small, grown-up, responsible decisions throughout yeah. your day. Well, that's actually a great point um, because I I am pushing 47 and yet I, – and I still don't feel like a grown-up. I don't feel like an adult except everybody in my family tells me to act like one. You know what well, I mean? I, I wouldn't want to get in the middle of that particular debate, but <laughs> you know, one one thing for the book uh, is uh, I I was a newspaper reporter for seven years, and you know, so part of me thought, well, I, you know, if I can go learn all about a bill moving through the Oregon State Senate and then explain it to someone who maybe has very little political background or understanding of how that process works in Oregon, then hey, maybe I could also find people who are really good at keeping their houses clean or keeping their finances in order or who know what to say in social situations and interview them and sort of report on how you become an adult. But, you know, the funny thing would be I would call someone who I really admired and really thought of as an adult, you know, someone who ran a very successful business, maybe was in their 50s, had a beautiful family, uh, sort of pillar of the community types, and they would laugh and say, oh, gosh, well, I'm not an adult. I don't, I don't know why you'd want to interview me. So, you know, it seems like nobody ever really thinks that they're, yeah. that they're there yet. You've you're you're you found a universal truth, apparently, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, who knew? But, yeah, you but, nailed yeah, it. We, 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 you know, I think, well, what I really think it is, is that, you know, we're, we're always inside our own heads and whatever it is that we're not very good at, uh, you know, sort of in terms of life, we assign a very high priority to, you know, personally, it's, I'm, I'm a messy person and I work on it, but I'm, I'm never going to be Martha Stewart in the homemaking department. And, and so I assume that that is what it means to an adult, be an adult. You know, an adult always has a spotless, perfectly company-ready house, whereas <laughs> someone who, you know, needed a little bit more help maybe with their money or that really stressed them out, to them, that's the marker of adulthood. So we're always we're always moving the target based on whatever it is that we're not quite as good at. Yeah. Is it um... – I mean, I, I feel I feel that uh, that's that's actually a perfect explanation. It's pretty much we assign the highest priority to the things we do the the least effectively, and it's exactly. it's it really is. It's because uh, I mean, a lot of your four hundred and eighty eighty or sixty eight ish steps are are basically just funny things that no one would ever think about, right? What what's some of your favorites? favorites that are um, kid friendly you know, and you know christian oh, radio of friendly of, of course um <laughs> you know one of my favorite pieces of advice is from a dear family friend named bonnie trumbull who lives up here in oregon and bonnie was saying you know when, when you're a young person and you're first out in the world first out at that job or whatever it might be 
sometimes you can feel really intimidated. You know, perhaps you've gotten an invitation to a fancy party or, you know, you're somewhere with important people and you're feeling like you shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. And she said, just always remember that you all arrived on the same guest list and that your invitation is just as valid as theirs. And, you know, you can apply that to a lot of situations. If you're, if you've gotten that job that you're really ex- Sorry about that. Oh, no, you're good. You've gotten that job. That's her calling right now. It's your friend. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, if you've gotten that job that you're really excited about and you show up and all of your coworkers are just brilliant and you, you feel so nervous, well, remember that, you know, you arrived with the same invitation as them. They saw something in you that they want. Mm. Uh, another really good piece of advice is just go ahead and clean something up as soon as it spills. Uh, and you wouldn't think that that would be a piece of necessary advice for a 27-year-old. But, you know, one of my friends was saying that throughout her day, you know, as she's brushing her teeth, you know, maybe a little teeny bit of toothpaste splatters or whatever. She just goes ahead and tidies it up right then and there. And I was like, that's brilliant. I have to be 27 (laughs) before someone told me that. (laughs) You know, not that I would never wipe things up. Right. Sometimes you'd be like, oh, well, I'll clean it up when I clean the sink on, you know. It's so true. Whatever. But there really are just little things that make life easier. Exactly. And if you don't pick them up, somebody does. Is that what you did? Did you go around and ask everybody? Uh, Yes, that's exactly what I did. Um, You know, and I started with with people I knew, good family friends, um, you know, friends of my parents who I knew to be people who – either were very at ease socially or, you know, really knew their way around, you know, the house in terms of being handy or were, were wonderful hostesses or what were successful in their careers. And, but the great thing about this is that you can really ask almost anyone uh, because everyone has some part of adulthood that they're good at. So I, I, while I was writing this book and it did, it was a several years long process. I, would just talk to people and I would ask, oh, if there was something that you could go teach your 22-year-old self, you know, not not the big stuff in life, not the forgive yourself, you know, accept, you know, your parents for who they are, you know, warts and all, that kind of thing. But like, no, here, here's how you change a tire and figure it out before you were standing on the side of the road uh, with a flat tire. And so then I, uh, I, would, I would take that and run with it. Mm. And again, I think that's it's so it's so appropriate because there's a great quote by Carl Jung that says um, that which is most personal is most universal. And so a lot of your points are so personal. Um, There was a in the article that reviewed your book um, uh, from The New York Times that uh, there was a great quote. And I think it was attributed to you that was it. it, um, I just lost it. Uh, basically, it was talking about, you know, it's not freaking out about, um, oh, it, it's when you open up your drawer, your crisper, and you, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, so what bothers you? I mean, it's not just the fight with a friend. That's, that's one thing. But it's that you, you open up your crisper drawer and a foul smell comes out because you, you thought you were going to go buy some kale and, and cook it and you never did. I'm always so optimistic when I'm in the produce section about <laughs> how many, you know, kind of quickly perishable veggies I will be cooking and eating before they go bad in, you know, a week. Um, 
Yeah, and, and it's, you know, we can really take all those things as signs and rather than thinking, okay, next time I really need to either be more reasonable about how much kale I'm buying or <laughs> barring that, I need to just give it a check every day or so and make sure it's not turning into that. I don't know if you've ever gotten to this point in your refrigerator. I hope you haven't. But, you know, that kind of slurry. Oh, yeah. Of, oh, oh yeah. Side and it, it does not smell good. No. But, so, you know, but we, we don't do that. We don't just say, huh, here's the problem. What can I do to fix it? And how can I maybe prevent it from happening again? We fall into this, you know, oh, my gosh, what is wrong with you? How could you let this happen? This is disgusting. No human has ever been as disgusting as you, blah, 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 blah. And then we haven't really solved anything. We've just really upset ourselves yeah, further. Right. And, and our kitchen still smells terrible. <laughs> and yet, and yet, next time you're at the store, if you've, if you've right. adulted and you're now an adult, then you wouldn't buy kale again unless you're really going to cook it. But Exactly. I still may exactly. take two or three more times creating you know, the slurry. And, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, we are never going to be perfect. You know, there's we're probably in some elements of our life, you know, maybe we were pretty good at them to begin with. Maybe it was something our parents really emphasized. And, and so it's, it's just not as much of a problem for us. But I think no matter who you are, there's going to be elements of life that, are not second nature and that you do have to work on and, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, as long as you just acknowledge that you have to work on them and acknowledge that you're not always going to be perfect at them. And that's, I guess, part of the growing up is maybe, you know, giving up the perfection idea. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, the quote that I love is, you know, don't let great be the enemy of good. Mm. And that's not to say that, you know, you should not strive for greatness, you know, but it also means that I think to be a healthy person, it's really important to acknowledge what you are good at and what you can do and focus on that. And then if you're up against a, a challenging situation, rather than deciding off the bat that you will never be able to do this or you'll never be able to do that, just thinking, no, I can, I can probably do this. Um, let's figure it out and let's have some patience with myself as I learn this. Yeah. Great advice. Uh, from again, Kelly Williams Brown, we'll take a break and come back, continue this discussion in just a couple of minutes, figure out, um, you know, more great advice from Kelly and her book, how, uh, adulting, how to become a grown up in 468 easiest steps. Also, you can go check out her website, kellywilliamsbrown.com. Just great insight um, that I think all of us could take into heart, right? Basic adulting. Very basic. We'll be right back, Kelly. Thanks. We'll take a break. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're on the line with uh, Kelly uh, W. Brown, author of the book Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easiest Steps. 
You can also go to her website, kellywilliamsbrown.com, to find more of her writings there as well. Um, she's, uh, she's just a fun resource to figure out how to make it into adulthood. Kelly, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks again. You know, anybody that can make up their own word, like adulting, I think is the bomb. Thank you. You know, it actually was uh, sort of a life dream to <laughs> make up a word that entered the lexicon. Um, and, you know, I'm not a scientist, so uh, I, this is probably, you know, this was my best shot. This is uh, perhaps my <laughs> legacy. I, I awaited, you know, becoming a new entry in the Oxford English Dictionary. See, you're there. You've arrived. And oh, and you're yeah. still you're still writing, right? Do you have other books planned? I mean, like how to become a senior citizen. Uh, I mean, is that going to be in yeah. part of your life? <laughs> well, that's probably a little bit further down. Yeah, the road. yeah, yeah. Actually, give it time. I'm, I'm working on my new book right now and having a wonderful time. The book is called Gracious, mm. and I'm originally from the South, from the New Orleans area, and I think graciousness, you know, is such a wonderful, wonderful quality. And I think we live in a time when it's, you know, it's really easy to be distracted. It's really easy to sort of talk about ourselves endlessly on social media, to have just quick interactions, but but not really take the time to be with the humans around us and have that good conversation you know, pay real attention to them. So mm. I'm in interviewing lots and lots of women and, and men, men too. But, okay, but good. A lot of, definitely men. Oh, a gracious man. There is nothing like it. There's <laughs> nothing more wonderful than a gracious and courtly man. Uh, and, and sort of examining what that quality is and, and how we can, how we can bring it back a little bit. I love that. And cause it is, it's like a lost art. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because it it really was something that, you know, would be really emphasized at home and taught in schools and we've gotten away from that, but but people love it, you know, and and having good manners is it, you know, it's not about, you know, oh, at this time you use this tiny fork to stab that piece of fruit otherwise, you know, right. you'll never be invited to the queen's table again. No, it's about you know, consideration and making others feel feel comfortable and at ease when they're with you, and and people respond to it and people love it. And you know, but they talk to me as though it's extinct. You know, it's just, it's the dodo bird or something. <laughs> you know? Like, oh, manners are dead. And I just want to say, no, no, no. Manners is are things that we can all learn and that we can all do. And it really doesn't it doesn't cost a dime. It just it takes you know, extra attention and, and moving through your day a little bit slower. But I, I think the rewards are well worth it. And it seems like graciousness is the next step. I mean, adulthood is one thing, but that, I mean, that just means you're, I guess, self-sufficient. You're, you're independent, you're able, you're capable. But gracious almost brings a whole different spirit to it, a whole different. Now you're an adult with, I don't know, with respect. Yeah, well, I think of graciousness as, you know, none of us really can do anything alone. You know, even if you're pursuing something solitary, you know, like writing a book, yeah. uh, you're, you're turning on your computer, which is run by power that other people are making for you somewhere, and you're working on a laptop that, again, you 
probably could not build yourself. So, I mean, humans have to interact and cooperate and work together every day. And, and so I think of being gracious and kind as really elevating that to maybe to its highest and finest form. And, and, you know, even just the word grace is a very, very interesting word. I mean, it's very, it's, it's an ancient word. It goes back to Sanskrit. The Greeks worshiped the graces. Of course, grace is a very important concept to many religions Mm -hmm. and it's understood as, you know, sort of the light and love of God reflecting off of us as humans. Hmm. And you, And, and you know, that's what we show to each other when we're, when we're gracious. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's brilliant. How many times has somebody not graciously received an award or, I mean, we, we kind of notice and we always joke about the, um, maybe the non-gracious way of doing it, but we don't ever highlight how to do it, what, what it looks like, what it feels like. We need solutions on graciousness. Well, and you know, again, this is like adulting, you know, I, I am not, I, gosh, I really wish I was the paragon of graciousness, but I'm not, you know, I'm like everyone else and I can get in my own head and sort of stew or, you know, think a little bit too much about myself and and not other people. But, you know, I've gotten so much wonderful advice for this book. Uh, One of my favorite pieces is from my friend Nora, who is not, you know, I'm, I'm, speaking to a lot of women who are several decades older than me, but Nora's actually younger than me. Hmm. And Nora said, you know, when I think of someone who's gracious, I just think of someone who is always thinking about other people and not themselves. And, you know, considering how the people around them are feeling, uh, thinking about what you can do you know, to to acknowledge them and their humanity. And so I wanted to play devil's advocate. And I said, okay, Nora, but what if someone maybe likes, you know, kind of thinking about themselves and their own stuff? And she said to me, well, I guess to that person I would say, think about how many people you know in your life. Hundreds? Thousands? Don't you think a life spent thinking about hundreds or thousands of people would be way more interesting than a life spent thinking about just one? Mm. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, it's it's definitely it's not nearly as, you know, straightforward and how to ish. Uh but there are many, many, you know, examples given throughout the book of, you know, how how we can be gracious just as we go through our day. Simple things, just hmm. making sure that you say hello and goodbye to everyone. Uh, which sounds so obvious, but then if you pay attention for a day, you you probably realize that you don't always do that. You don't always greet people, you know. You, you greet someone who's coming into your home or a friend that you're meeting, but maybe you don't say hello to that store clerk right. in the morning. Or but, thank you, but, you know, or yeah. Yeah, they, they deserve it. And just, you know, appreciating the things that people do for you and never feeling entitled to it because when you don't feel entitled to anything then everything you receive becomes a gift yeah then it's not yeah you're not expecting it it's a surprise exactly you know if if you get an invitation to a party then that person didn't have to invite you to the party but they as they were planning this special evening for 
their friends, they thought, oh, gosh, let's have Kelly. And, and that's an honor that they want me there. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not entitled to it. And so because of that, you know, you don't critique the party in your head. You don't think, you know, of what you could have done better. You are simply really grateful that you're there. And um, that that gratitude really is is very life-changing. It changes your perspective on your day every day and of course you know i i it's i luckily i feel like some of it is rubbing off on me or at least some of the viewpoints that that i'm getting are rubbing off and and it you know not only is it really make you a more pleasant person to be around but it feels really good you feel happier yeah as you move through your day and which that just that just changes everything right now i can just enjoy my life. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you're, you're, you're not spending a lot of time, you know, when you're not spending a lot of time thinking about yourself, that means that you're not spending a lot of time, you know, criticizing yourself or comparing yourself to everyone around you and, you know, maybe being envious or trying to figure out, you know, why does this person have this and I don't, you know? Hmm. Does um, so part of the motivation, and I guess this is probably the final question: is what you are almost it sounds like just learning and exploring life, and you're doing it as a writer. Is that is that what you're doing? Because like you you keep talking about how you're not a pro at this stuff; you're just curious, and then you just ask people that have ideas, and you take ideas, and they feel good. <laughs> I mean, some are funny yeah. and some are, some just make you feel good, but you're starting to internalize it as you go. Yeah. I mean, I would say that I've always been sort of a natural reporter, even before I was a reporter. And I'm just really interested in talking to humans about what they think and why they think it and, you know, what motivates them to get up in the morning and, and what, you know, what they wish the world would know and, I I think that that ends up usually, you know, with adulting and certainly I hope with gracious, something that other people turn out to be interested in too. And I'm just lucky enough to get to, you know, enjoy enjoy the ride as I'm putting it together. Yeah. No, it's working. It's working, Kelly. No, it really is. I love it. And I just love the idea that you're also, you're learning and, and then teaching. There's a great benefit in life to asking questions, listening to others. And then teaching what you learn. It's powerful. Kelly Williams Brown is the website. Go to the website, kellywilliamsbrown.com, and also go look for the books Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps, and her new coming uh, book that should be out, um, Graciousness. Um, Kelly, when will that book be ready? That is coming out in a winter of 2017. There you so, go. Uh, not immediate, working yeah. on it through the summer, but... Um, I will definitely let y'all know when it. it comes. We'll out. have you back. We'll talk graciousness. Oh, that would be fabulous. I should I should know much more by then. Awesome. So. Kelly, thank you so much and, and uh, keep up the great investigative work. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Kelly Williams Brown, folks, and again, the book Adulting, we all need it. In fact, we got two two copies of it for Ben. <laughs> and a dictionary. Uh, <laughs> to help him through that difficult ride. Stick with us, folks. Doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives, and see the good in the world, for heaven's sakes. 
We just saw a bunch of it right there. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt Townsend out sick today. We're in taking care of things. Remember the high school days, when, remember your high school days when you were would do anything for a spare dollar, and you did. You might be grateful that those high school jobs are in your past, but you never know what life could throw at you. Those part-time so-called starter jobs might be all that's offered in the future. But there are definitely a few things we can learn from those part-time burger-flipping jobs. Our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to teach us five things we can do to pass the time at work and make any job more enjoyable. This, my friend, is a power office. You know, I feel very lucky to have a job that I really enjoy and one that's waiting for me to come in every day. Everyone talks about how hard it is to find a job these days. Competition is fierce and demand is high. Well, we're living here in Allentown. And they're closing all the factories down. There are numerous articles about how millennials won't be able to find jobs after college. See anything on the one ads? How minorities struggle to find job opportunities. Or how large companies are laying off thousands of people. You're fired. What? I don't think it's working out, so let's just make a clean break. So, maybe we should all just start preparing ourselves to go back to our high school jobs. Just a good burger, please, and I'd like that to go. One good burger! Even with a degree, I guess you could find yourself flipping burgers instead of being a stockbroker. I think the fries are just about done. But don't worry. I believe you can be happy no matter how you're bringing home that bacon. Bacon up that sausage, boy. My heart hurts. Don't fear your future of greasy spatulas or toilet brushes. You know what they say, pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. Yes, sir, that's one clean toilet. I think it's possible that there aren't any boring jobs out there, just boring people. So whether you're in high school trying to gain enough cash to buy those pictures at the high school dance, or you're one of the millions of Americans that have to let their diploma catch dust on the shelf and settle for a simpler life, starter jobs don't have to be the death sentence to your social life, your happiness, or your sanity. I channeled back to my high school days and my first jobs to come up with five things you can do to find happiness and pass the time at any job, even if it does seem meaningless. Be ambitious. Just because you're stuck behind a cash register or flipping burgers doesn't mean you can't dream big. You're starting to think big. One of my first jobs was working at a soup and sandwich cafe. For some reason, I was always assigned to the job no one wanted. Door greeter. Welcome to Klimpies. Anywhere you like. This does not bode well. That meant I had to stand alone, away from all my coworkers, and endure each frigid gust of wind every time someone opened the door. You're as cold as ice. But instead of staring at the soup stains on my shoes until the next customer came through the door, I decided to make use of that clipboard and paper I had to carry around. See, I always dreamed of being a novelist. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. So, when the business was slow, I'd flip my paper over and just write stories on the back of my evaluation papers. Usually it was just ridiculous renditions of my coworkers' lives that I fictionalized or made up backstories of people I'd watch from a distance. But it was great. I got to practice my writing skills, and my coworkers got a little comic relief. Like I've always told you, you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Make your work your play. Find creative ways to make your job a game. The job's a game. Another one of my first jobs was being a janitor at an elementary school. 
Luckily, I had a good friend who worked the same job as me, and we made those menial tasks some of the best parts of our day. We each had these long poles with tennis balls at the end of them to get the smudges off the floor, and we'd race them down the hall. Or we would play tag on opposite sides of the glass when we were washing windows. It made the hours tick by much faster. Make relationships with your coworkers. Thank you for being a friend. These people are the people you're going to have to be stuck around for like eight hours a day. So you'd better figure out how to get along with them. Did you see the memo about this? Plus, you could probably learn a thing or two from them. My first college job was working with the media productions, and when there wasn't a game or seminar going on that we had to film, my coworkers and I would just grab a camera and start making music videos or commercials or really whatever we wanted. That's what friends are for. We learned how to use the camera equipment, different filming techniques, and which one of us looks best on camera. Four. Be competitive with yourself. On your mark, get set, go, James, go. Racing around to see how many tables I could get clean within a certain time, how many people I could convince to try a particular soup, or even how dirty I could get my apron by the end of the day. It just helps to keep your sanity. And he's got to get it back before the bell rings. Oh, that's it, everybody. Come on back. Five. Find the hidden treasures. Whether that means finding the leftover cake from the staff conference in the teacher's lounge fridge, or discovering the secret hallway that only your card can access by the media lab, or maybe meeting the old lady who gives you an extra $10 tip just for getting her a takeout box. Every job has its hidden treasures, and the sooner you find them, the sooner you can start appreciating your job and stop focusing on that burning hole in your pocket. Micah didn't realize the tip was for $500. So, if you're entering the workforce as a high school senior, or wallowing on the couch as a college graduate because of all your rejected resumes and failed interviews, I'm a failure, complete loser. Don't worry, that burger joint needs you. Can I take your order? And just remember that every job is just a stepping stone to help you reach your ultimate dream. As Jerry Rice says, today I will do what others won't, so tomorrow I can do what others can't. Whether you're making a stock investment or making a Happy Meal, just remember to smile. Happy job hunting. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. Well, we're living here in This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome into the Matt Townsend Show. Matt Townsend out today. Terry South, producer of the show, and Jeff Simpson. Hey, hey. Button pusher. He's the chief button pusher of the Matt Townsend Show. He's currently pushing more buttons over there. Today is a very special day, being September 12th. We've talked about it. It is Chocolate Milkshake Day. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up! That sounded like it was a tasty milkshake. It did. What, is that he was how, going to town on that thing. Is that how you drink a milkshake? Well, I do prefer drinking it through a straw, if that's what you mean. I mean Otherwise, loud, it's just ice cream. If loud you're... versus quiet, because that was pretty loud. Well, there is a certain milkshake drinking etiquette, isn't there? But then there, you know, like with soup, some people say it's not polite to slurp it. Other people mm. say that is the polite way to do is to slurp it. That's how you compliment the chef? Absolutely. Hmm. So that's how you compliment the... Uh, 16-year-old who put together the shake for you. you. Just 
slurp it up. Interesting. I'll keep that in mind. It's also Video Games Day, a celebration of what many people think is a high waste of time. What people? Lots of people. Come on. Mainly parents. You remember this one? Pac-Man? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My friend was really good at Pac-Man. I didn't have the patience. That's kind of annoying. I'd play for a while and then just drive into a ghost. It's like, ah, I'm done. (laughs) You can actually, at arcades now, they've updated it so where you can have four people playing against each other. Mm. So it's a competition between the other players. Wow. So, yeah, there's that. And then uh, this is going back even further. Pong? That's it. Hours of fun. Wow. For, yeah. who I don't know. Pong never seemed like something that was interesting, but uh, there were a lot of games that tried to build off of Pong. Oh, yeah. I didn't. I left those alone, just didn't really seem to in entertain my, me at all. In my opinion, the simpler the game, the simpler the graphics and the controller, the spe- especially the controller, the better the game is. Nice. That's probably a good rule to, to follow by in life. The more difficult the controls, the better the outcome. Yeah. No? No. Okay. Well, moving on. We'll get on to some news here. Uh, Coming up, we'll talk about... uh, What are we going to talk about? Oh, yeah, there was a mosquito festival. What? We're going to discuss that. Things the Russians are doing. Like it's just for... Like only mosquitoes can go? Celebrate. We'll talk about it. They're celebrating mosquitoes. We'll get to that coming up next. But right now, we have Sadie Nielsen with the news. A fire at the Florida mosque attended by the Pulse nightclub shooter is being investigated as arson. No injuries were reported. Omar Mateen prayed at the Islamic Center of Fort Pierce before opening fire on a gay nightclub June 12th in an ISIS-inspired attack, killing 49 people and wounding 53 others. The fire comes one day after the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. A new selection of polls from NBC News, Wall Street Journal, Marist, and Reuters sees Republican Donald Trump closing in on Democrat Hillary Clinton and a number of battleground states narrowing her national lead. Though Reuters still calculates an 83% chance of a Clinton win with nearly 50 more electoral college votes than her rival, it also finds Florida and Ohio, two key swing states, are no longer certain to go blue. The NBC survey, meanwhile, found Clinton and Trump in a statistical tie in four states which are not which were not in dispute for the last two elections. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards requested a $2 billion bailout during a trip to Washington, D.C. on Friday for the increased projected cost of repairing the state after recent disastrous flooding. The estimated cost of damages could hit as high as $15 billion. Simply put, we cannot recover without it, Edwards told a House subcommittee hearing. President Obama and the Federal Emergency Management have spent over $660 million in public relief efforts so far and finally a crash on the stretch of interstate in michigan caused delays when it covered three lanes of the road in human waste the michigan department of transportation confirmed only one lane of northbound interstate 75 remained open last week in vienna township after a u-haul truck collided with a tanker truck hauling a load of human waste Mm. Uh, clio area assistant fire chief kirk todd said hazmat crews responded to the scene and used sand to soak up to make it into a solid form uh, that could then be removed from the road. That's a lot of detail. That stinks. Man, I can't yeah. stand it. Yeah, it does stink. Literally. Well, love the car wrecks. There's always a story every couple days, really, of just random vehicles crashing into each other and then what's left. Like we had the one of the cold cut, a, a truck full of cold cuts, and then we had a, 
a truck full of cheese. And so they were looking for a bread shop truck so they can make some sandwiches. Or there was a, a truck full of uh, pork products, so like bacon that caught fire. So everyone was like, this smells like bacon. I like this. And just every few days, there was like yogurt spills or honey or some random when is Food it going to be like a an armored truck or a you know a truck full of gold doubloons or something? They'll have an armored truck with money just sort of explode and there's money everywhere, so traffic stops and everyone's out there grabbing money, fistful of dollars, you know. By the way, that's those are the types of situations where you see people in their true element, their true nature, what they would do in that situation. Would you take the money and run? I've thought about it. No, I wouldn't either. I think that there's more problems that come from it rather than the momentary, I've got this money, can I get away now? Well, usually in a movie, if you take money that doesn't belong to you, there's always somebody that is going to come after that money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, money in an armored truck, they know what the serial numbers are. Absolutely. So if they catch them in circulation, you could get in trouble that way too. So it's hard to get away with it. They need to somehow put like a, a paint chip. You know how they put paint in bags of- The dye packs? Yeah, yeah. They need to put that on the bills themselves. They could. But that would be way too expensive. A lot of meticulous work there. Moving on, we've talked about Russia. The Russia's constantly in the news with Trump and Putin and all this stuff. There's other things happening in Russia. Russia's a big place. One of my favorite things, there's a lot of YouTube channels, Russia, Russian dash cam, dash cam videos. So people have cameras in their cars constantly because people are, I guess there's a lot of accidents and so you want to have your own record of what happened. And uh, they just they record really crazy things going on. So that's something to search on YouTube. This is a story I found. It's in Berinsky, Russia. I'm not saying that right. Do you know the name of that? It's right there. Let me take a look at it. So it looks like it's Berezhniki. See, I wasn't even close. Yeah, just, it's all about where to put the accent. It says, while fears of the Zika virus have kept some people away from the Olympics in Rio, so some, uh, before it happened in the Olympics, people decided not to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, residents of one Russian town, the more mosquito bites the better. They, yeah, that's a good rule to live by. They think the more mosquito bites you get, the better, especially in this situation. As the Russian Mosquito Festival in the town of Berzrinsky? Berezhniki. <laughs> Russian. Uh, a nine-year-old little girl won the tastiest girl category. She got 43 mosquito bites to show up uh, for going uh, berry picking in a forest with her mother. She was awarded a ceramic cup in recognition of the welts all over her legs. Hmm. Oh. Oh. That was a huge mosquito. <laughs> a big mosquito. Unusually hot and dry weather in the Ural Mountains uh, town, however, has greatly depleted the number of mosquitoes this year. Festival organizers had to cancel the traditional mosquito hunt, where participants try to collect as many of the insects as possible in jars. The heat also had... Uh, this uh, girl sweltering in her mosquito costume as she led some of the dancing at the festival. Apparently there's dances and all kinds of activities celebrating mosquitoes. Now it's fourth year, so. So it's it's a big deal. So but she has the sweetest blood out of anybody else there. This little girl got 43 mosquito bites, so she's the tastiest girl. Wow. Are those the type of bra- bragging rights that you would want, Terry? No. I think you want to try to avoid mosquitoes. It says Russia has detected only a few Zika cases and all, all in people who are believed to have traveled to infected areas and then come home. Wow. So Zika is not a, a big concern for them. But over in the Ural Mountains, they're celebrating the mosquito and they're having contests to see who the tastiest man, woman, 
girl yeah. boy, see who can get the most bites, which seems like an odd thing to be celebrating. You know, at that age, my ultimate bragging rights, listen to this, okay? So you remember the movie Benji? Yes. With the little dog? Which one? The Hunted? Benji Goes Home? Benji, Benji and the Martians? Exonerated? Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Um, so the movie Benji, my dad's uncle and aunt. Mm-hmm. So my great is that does that make them my great uncle and great aunt? Sure. They wrote the Golden Globe winning theme song and Academy Award winning theme song oh, wow. to the movie Benji. Wow. So they've I've never seen it, but apparently they've got a Golden Globe and got to go to the Oscars. You're adjacent to greatness. Adjacent. Well, I am on the Matt Townsend show now, so yeah. we'll oh. see. Are you this he's isn't not, a probationary he, thing. They here. told me I have the job. Matt, Matt's not here. You don't have to try to butter him up all the time. All right. You can just be real at some point. <laughs> what What about you? I mean, what what kind of ultimate bragging rights do you have, whether it's you or your kids or your wife? Anything Mitt, to brag about? Former presidential candidate Mitt Romney pushed me out of the way at the Olympics once. Really? Yeah. Steve Young, the all-pro, Super Bowl-winning quarterback of the 49ers, he pushed me out of the way, too. So... Terry, you're kind of a big guy. Do they just see you and think, "Well, I was, I'm, this is, looks like a challenge to me? I was on the uh, TV crew during this Olympic broadcast, and okay. they both were trying to get to the stage, and I was walking down a tight aisle, and they were too, and they just sort of stiff-armed me in the shoulder, like, excuse me, and they kept moving. And I went, hey, Hall of Famer. <laughs> so now we know who the pushover here is. Yeah, well, I, I was the little guy in that situation, so I got out of the way. Uh, other Russia news. Russia's making the news today. Atlitsna. A raid on the acting head, the acting head of Russia's anti-corruption agency turned out to be quite productive. Police found a bag big enough to accommodate over $122 million in cash, sources told Russian media. This is according to the website, the TV network, Russia Today, RT. RT? They, they report on all that's things Russia. That's what the Russia. kids call it, RT. So, that's it. The police arrested the deputy head. This is the guy's This is the uh, the guy's title. The deputy head of the Energy Industry Department of the General Administration of Economic Security and Combating the Corruption, otherwise known as the GAESCC. <laughs> exactly. So this guy's the acting head of the anti-corruption Department in the government of the Soviet of no, Soviet of Russia, and the police show up, and the anti-corruption guy has one hundred twenty million dollars sitting in his apartment. So you're saying there's some corruption there? I think he was looking at it as maybe he misunderstood the job description. They said anti-corruption. He thought it was pro, or maybe he thought my job title is so long, I deserve this much money. That would probably be the reason why he took the money. Okay. Because a lot of times that's what ends up happening is you feel like you're entitled after all the work I've done for these people. So, uh, yeah, he's going to jail. But uh, Russia, head of or the acting head of the anti-corruption agency was apparently corrupted in some way. That's ironic. Yes. As things go. Also, North Korea over the weekend seeking to prevent criticism of its oppressive policies and totalitarian leader, North Korea, has reportedly banned all sarcastic comments about its government and Kim Jong-un himself. No more sarcasm in North Korea. No. The ban was announced at a large meeting called by its officials around the country. It was announced at the end of August, just making uh, reports out today. One state security official personnel recognized 
or organized a meeting to alert local residents to potential hostile actions by internal rebellious elements, an unnamed person said uh, on Radio Free Asia. The main point of the lecture was keep your mouth shut. Among the phrases specifically prohibited, these take notes, Okay, uh, you, you can't say a fool who cannot see outside the world, a phrase circulating among North Koreans as a mocking critique of their so-called dear leader. Mm-hmm. Also banned is this is all America's fault. Got it. Apparently, North Korea is equivalent to thanks Obama. Hmm. So sarcasm. So something goes wrong in North Korea. They go, oh, this is America's fault. That's sarcasm. Can't have that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Terry, I wanted to let you know you did a really good job reading that story. We should look at sarcasm on the Matt Townsend show. It might be out of control. We'll look into that. Might need to critique a little bit, maybe adjust some things and make sure that we're we're on North Korean standards at least. Yeah. But we never use sarcasm on the show, so no. we're, we're good. We're safe. Yeah. We'll function highly as our dear leader is homesick. <laughs> Should we call him that? Should we call him the dear leader? Our fearless leader. Fearless leader. Who knows? Matt Townsend again. He is uh, ill today. We're going to revisit some of the interviews we've done in the last few months. uh, Jessica Leahy wrote a book called The Gift of Failure, teaching kids and also parents how failure can be a good thing in childhood development. We'll have that coming up next here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you've probably heard of Pinterest fails. You know, you see a funny fail on YouTube videos. And, you know, many of us experience fails regularly, right? Failure is a part of life. But, uh, in fact, ask yourself, think about it. What was your biggest fail? Where did you really just mess it up? You know, it seems like an awful question, but often we learn from these experiences, and uh, it really, I think, believe, sets us up to have the higher highs, right? Because we've experienced the lower lows. Joining us on the phone is Jessica Leahy. She's our guest, and she's going to be talking about her book, The Gift of Failure, and uh, she's here to help us as parents learn how to let our children, you know, go and, and sometimes, I guess, fail in order to succeed she joins us now uh, to give us her great insight. Miss Leahy, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Wonderful uh, concept on the book, right? Because it almost seems like it's such a natural thing. You wouldn't need to teach people about failure. But we live in a culture where we're constantly trying to avoid it. Well, you know, I've worked as a teacher for a long time, and teachers get that. I mean, I think most teachers understand that there's a lot of flailing about and, you know, sitting with a little bit of frustration that happens before you kind of have a breakthrough and figure things out. But, you know, it's also really hard to see kids frustrated. And and the parent side of me was having a little bit of trouble seeing my own kids frustrated at the same time that I was angry at the parents of my students for not letting them get frustrated and not letting them feel the consequences of their mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, I think teachers get it for the most part. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because when it's your child, uh, (laughs) you almost want to protect them from any negativity, any pain. Yeah, and, and I don't know what happened to my brain. I think I got a big um, line down the middle, and my teacher brain and my parent brain weren't really talking to each other for a yeah. while. 
But, yeah, you'd, it's hard to watch your kid get frustrated, especially when there are tears, especially when they're really uncomfortable or feeling like they're stupid. You know, you just want to fix that. And, and sometimes we, ha- we have to step back and remember that those are really important moments for them. Do you think as an educator that our current – our education system might ingrain a fear of failure? You know, we're constantly in this pressure of grades, of success, of passing tests. Is, oh, absolutely. is that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I've written about the fact that, you know, in the in the book, I quote a specific situation in which a student of mine who previously had been just one of the most engaged and enthusiastic students, someone who loved to learn, admitted in a paper that she was so obsessed with the idea of being perfect and so worried about being seen as anything other than, you know, effortlessly perfect that she had completely lost her enjoyment of learning. That mm. was gone. And, uh, and that was just devastating to, for me to hear. Well, and learning is directly tied to failure. Yeah. You have to fail, really, yeah, right? Absolutely. And, and the, the other thing we have to be able to do, there's this fantastic concept um, that, you know, educators talk about called desirable difficulties. And um, it means that, you know, something, it's, it's a good difficulty level. It's just frustrating enough that a kid has to sort of push through and learn through a little bit of challenge. And it's one of the most effective teaching tools we have. And if you know, if we're constantly giving kids, you know, instructions about, you know, here's the next step, sweetie, here's how you do it, you don't have to struggle at all, then we don't get to use that tool. And we need kids that can, you know, get a little frustrated and regroup and maybe read the instructions again and then say to themselves, you know, yeah, I I think I can figure this out. And kids that can't do that are a lot less teachable. Hmm. Now, what, what do you think leads to the difference between those that can do it and those that can't? You know, I, I, I think a lot of it, some of it comes down to temperament, clearly. Um, but a lot of it comes down to, there's some great research that's in, um, that I quote in Gift of Failure, where when you look at even very, very young children at, at age one, when you have parents who are highly directive and show, and, you know, don't let the kid get frustrated and push through and sort of are always there with the next thing they need to do, those kids get they they learn to be helpless. It's called learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. And those kids don't develop sort of the emotional wherewithal to sort of sit back and push through. And, and it, when you take those parents away from those kids and then you give them tasks to do, they're a lot less likely to be able to push through on their own because they've never had to develop that skill. They've always had someone there to give them the next uh, the next step. Hmm. So it's it's the kids who actually whose parents are there and supportive but not giving them the next step that are will help redirect a little bit but generally speaking will let the kids struggle for a little bit longer those are the kids that are a, a dream to teach and and learn much more learn a lot more information and learn it more durably hmm. and they come to class and uh, these children that I guess now the big word is resilient, they're resilient mm-hmm. to this stuff, they're able to adapt. And mm-hmm. um, wh- what do you see that it does to their abilities? What are they able to do that, uh, that, that sets them aside and, and, and pushes them forward? Well, I'm glad you used the word adapt because I think that word is really important because it's really – their ability, to, kids' ability to positively adapt to failure, not, you know, to not curl up in a ball and weep and, and think of themselves as stupid or, you know, the kids who don't just freak out and assume and take the failures personally, <clears throat> the kids who say, okay, what did I get wrong 
what do I need to fix for next time? Those are the kids who are going to do well over the long term. And I talk, um, when I go around to schools, I talk about the kids that, you know, sometimes I'll give them constructive criticism on their writing or something, and occasionally kids will just shut down and not hear me because that is so challenging for them to hear. They take it very personally. They think it's a personal failure. Um, and the problem is, is when they don't, when they're not able to f- to process constructive criticism and feedback, they can't ever incorporate that into their writing, their math, or whatever it is they're doing. So it's the kids that can listen and say, "Oh, okay, I see how I can improve," and then actually incorporate that into their into their learning. And and you know, I know plenty of adults that aren't able to hear <laughs> negative feedback. It freaks them out. No, um, exactly. And, yeah, that that's sort of the real key to success is positive adaptation to mistakes and failures. Is um, I guess are we born this way? Do you sense? Are we conditioned? Is it our parenting? I mean, we've alluded to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. That a, a too too um, I guess highly directive of a type of parent might mm-hmm. oppress us a little bit and not have us not learn it. But it seems There's, like sensitive people too might struggle more. There is a temper. There is a the temperament, temperament element to it. But research, there's some really famous research on rats that shows very specifically um, about how clearly learned helplessness works. You know, if you take control away from an adolescent rat and and hurt it, um, it learns that it has no control over um, stopping that pain. And when when it gets to be an adult and you hurt it, it will do nothing to stop the pain, whereas rats, the adolescent rats that have been given the ability to stop little shocks that they're being given to stop the pain will stop the pain Mm. as adults. So, and there's, you know, there's all kinds of cool research on, you know, for example, kids who lived during the depression and were old enough to get a job and make a small contribution to their families, as opposed to younger kids who couldn't do that. The, the kids who were able to make a small contribution to gain control in some way had much fewer mental health issues when they grew up than the kids who were not able to take control of the situation. So giving kids more autonomy, giving them some control over the things they do and their learning um, and how they do it and where they do it, that's going to be the key to sort of interrupting that cycle of learned helplessness. Yeah, I guess a lot of it is just about their ability to control it. And we do this in business too, which is maybe why we struggle at work and have a lot of people with learned helplessness at Mm -hmm. work because we tell them what they have to do Mm -hmm. and we tell them how they have to do it and when it's got to be done by Yeah, and I give the example in my talks, I explain to parents, I say, look, picture if you've been doing a job with a boss that trusts you for ages and you've been autonomous and you've had all this freedom to sort of do it the way you see fit and a new boss comes in that, you know, really wants to put his mark on, you know, on your, on the work and says, you know, for the next couple weeks, I'm going to need for you to pass everything by me and I want to see everything that you put out there. You feel resentful. You push back against that and it makes you less motivated from inside, less intrinsically motivated to do that work because you're feeling controlled. And that's the same thing that we see in kids. And, you know, anyone who's ever read Dan Pink's Drive or watched Dan Pink's TED Talk about what's in Drive understands that, you know, extrinsic motivators like grades or, you know, short-term incentives or, you know, bribing kids for their grades, that kind of stuff, um, those don't work over the long term to get kids excited about learning. 
Yeah. It's driven, though, it seems like by like this fear of parents um, thinking their child is like in pain. And yeah. How, yeah. how do you get the fear out of the parent's heart? You know, the, I always like to say that at, at a certain point, you have to think about your long term goals for your children over your short term sort of feeling better about yourself for alleviating that pain. Um, I talk in the book about a day that my my son, who was having organizational issues, left his homework at home. And, you know, he'd been getting in trouble for his organizational stuff, and we'd been working on it, but, you know, clearly we weren't there yet. And if I had just delivered that homework to him at school, he would have been able to go out to recess. He wouldn't have had this whole conflict with the teacher. Um, I would have felt so good about it. I would have been able to, like, say, oh, yeah, I was a good mom today. But I didn't take it. And what ended up happening was he had to have a meeting with the teacher in which the teacher said, look, this is it. time is up on this. You have to figure out a system. And that was the day he actually came up with a really effective system that has worked for three years since that day. Mm. Um, and if I had taken that homework that day, it would have short-circuited that entire process. Right. You know, I would have taught him, oh, you know, you don't really need to come up with any kind of system because never mind, the homework will just show up for you. Is it, is it, but you would have looked better. Oh, yeah. Because then you wouldn't be, you wouldn't as an educator have to go talk to another educator about (laughs) how your child doesn't have a system yet. Oh, yeah. No, we're still, you know, this is still something, you know, especially when you have kids in middle school. Yeah. Middle school, the entire time, I have one in middle school now and one in high school, Middle school, as I call it in the book, is prime time for failure. It is the time when we give kids more than they can handle and then teach them how to handle it. And that's, it, the, it's so important that that's why there are schools out there that have finally put their foot down and said, no, we are not going to let you deliver things to your kids that they forgot anymore. There's no drop-offs after your kids are here for the day because part of our job as teachers, especially in middle school, is to help kids come up with systems that will help them feel the consequences of their mistakes and learn how to do better next time. Mm, I love that. <laughs> I'm so glad. That is such a great idea. Like, I mean, well, now it's hard, too, because your kids have phones. So they'll text you like, I'm going to die if I don't. I forgot <laughs> yeah, my lunch. A headmaster recently asked me specifically, said, you know, I don't know what to do about parents who are texting their kids constantly during the school day. And I said, well... You know, because it is such a distraction to the kids. And I said, well, you could tell the parents that if they wouldn't call and have the kid physically taken out of class to please not text, because it is still that disruptive. Even if it's just the phone buzzing in their pocket, it removes the kids mentally from class. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a major problem when they're constantly in touch with, uh, with the world while they're in class. Mm, great lessons. Let's take a break, Jessica. We are speaking with Jessica Leahy, the author of the book The Gift of Failure. Uh, you know, we, we need to go through it, folks. This is part of the learning process. She's going to continue her discussion uh, with us after the break. Then we'll uh, figure out more about a failure and how to maybe allow it and, and get over ourselves so our kids can grow Interesting stuff. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Do you let your children uh, fail? If they've, you know, if they've forgotten their report that they needed to turn in, do you just rush it over? Uh, you know, you got to because you're the one that wrote the report, for heaven's sakes. You want credit for what you spent all night doing. If you feel like you have created maybe a little uh, success monster in your family because you've never let them fail, then this is the uh, moment of all moments. We are talking on the phone right now with Jessica Leahy, and she is the author of the book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She joins us now to talk more about what we can be doing as parents to uh, facilitate, or at least not stop, uh, the failure, um, some of the failures of our children. Thank you so much again for being with us, Jessica. Sure thing. What do you think? Do um, do we do we just let our kids fail? Uh, do we need to you know choose wisely the failures, or do we yeah. just let life teach? You know, I think what you need to do is is especially with older kids is say, look, um, there's all this research that shows that if I give you a little more control over your life, especially your life around school, that you'll be more motivated yourself to learn. And so I've, I've been doing this wrong, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and give you more control. But before I do that, here are my really, really clear expectations for what I expect from you. You know, so for example, homework will get done to the best of your ability, and it'll get handed in. And then if you're not, if you don't do that, here are what the really clear expectate or really clear consequences are going to be. And hopefully they're consequences that actually flow from the thing itself, like Mm. natural consequences. So, you know, in our family, it's, if you're not getting your work in, then you're responsible for setting up the meeting with the teacher and with us, and then you lead the meeting and we talk about strategies for how you'll turn that around. Um, And then, you know, and then sort of give your kids just especially you have to meet your kids where they are. Some kids are going to need more help from you and than others, but start just pulling back. Um, let your sort of alarm bells for when things are getting just so urgent and so, uh, you know, when you get freaked out about, you know, this homework assignment, back off just a little bit and give your kids a little bit more faith because every time we step in for them and, and take over something or tell them that we'll just help them out or do it for them, what we're really telling them is that we don't trust them and we right. don't think they're competent enough to do it themselves. And if you show trust, they, they um, at first it seems like with my children, they'd be mm-hmm. emboldened by this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, great, fine, sure. Yeah. But the reality is they're going to get bit. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's it's fine to get bit because the the principle I love is they have to have ownership, right? Yep. No no buy in. Yep. Um then they're then they no participation in the process. They're not going to yep. buy into it. So yeah. they're the, I like the idea too of just knowing they're going to fail a little mm-hmm. bit but express express the trust and know that you're really growing a skill here an ability. Right. Well, and, you know, for example, I was talking to a, a, a school counselor recently who was trying to help some parents understand why it was so important that her kid get a zero on a paper that he had plagiarized. The parents were livid, um, did not want him to get this, fit, this zero on this paper. They said it was going to harm his grade. And, you know, this is a kid who wanted to grow up to be a scientist, a doctor. And this is a kid who needs to learn that there are consequences for plagiarizing because it's either a zero on a paper now or lose your entire career when you're in your 20s, you know, 
I would certainly pick the zero on the paper now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of this, I guess, too, is you got to be smart enough as a parent um, to anticipate possible, you know, situations. Like if if a con and and be able to live it. So if they make a consequence that, well, fine. This is what we do with our kids. If if my grades aren't better by Monday, then just take my phone. And yeah. okay, great. If that's what, <laughs> all right. But yeah. and how long will we take the phone for? And yeah. they'll fail, and and when they fail, they'll learn. But yeah. I've got to be strong enough and remember and follow through and allow it to happen. Yeah, and and getting kids on board, especially if you're talking to them, you say, look, if if this thing is happening, what do you think the consequences should exactly. be? And you know, it's sort of I always take it back to you know when you have a toddler, you don't say, would you like to wear a hat today? You say, would you like to wear the red hat or the blue hat? But even just giving a tiny bit of autonomy um, makes a huge difference. And when you were talking about trust, you know, I just wanted to interject that there's really clear research that shows that kids who are more controlled by their parents, who feel like their parents are extremely controlling, are a lot more likely to lie to Mm. their parents. Mm. So if we'd like honesty from our children, then we have to show a little bit more faith in them. I love that. Yeah. And you'll get more, you'll get more uh, validation and trust from them. Yeah. I mean, and there's, you know, there's ups and downs and things will go great for a little while and you'll have a honeymoon period and then things will fall apart. Exactly. But then that's the perfect time to talk about positive adaptation to failure. And when I say things will fall apart, I mean failing grades. I mean like bad stuff. But those are all important learning experiences. And I think parents conveniently forget some of the huge mistakes they made in their lives that (laughs) they learned a lot from. And it's important, I guess, to be the parent that is a, a safety net that can still mm-hmm. catch them uh, you know, after they've hit the ground and the consequences have shattered them, then be there. Well, and make it really, really clear that we love them yeah, no um, matter what, not just based on their performance. Because I think parents don't realize it, but when their kid comes home with a failing grade and you respond with silence as opposed to you know, the effusive praise you give when they come home with the A, that silence in response to a failing grade, that is withdrawal of love based on performance. Mm. And it's one of the most harmful things we do to children emotionally and I, I don't we don't mean it that way. That's certainly not what we mean to do, but that's what kids feel. Yeah. yeah. So the love has to always be present. Yeah, and the support. That's why, you know, the term for what I'm advocating for is autonomy supportive, not, you know, bye kid, you're on your own, I'm leaving and good luck. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're there, you're supportive, but what you're supporting is their autonomy. You're supporting their ability to make decisions about how they're going to get something done and and uh, and how they're going to get there. And a lot of that is really important to their development of, you know, what are so-called executive functions, organization, and time management. Um, all of that's really important to how they learn that they learn how to do that over time. I mean, that is different, isn't it, than abandonment? <laughs> and, and almost yeah. this, and kind of with a chip on your shoulder. Oh, lie. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, watch the yeah, you're gonna yeah, you're gonna fail. Well, and and people have accused me of, you know, sort of this laissez faire parenting thing, but honestly I, I don't think I've ever been a s this is the most strict I've ever been in terms of, yeah, when I lay down really, really clear expectations and I tell you what the consequences are going to be, I am a bad parent if I do not follow through with those consequences. And, you know, when I'm really clear with my kids about that, you know, I think we don't give kids enough uh, credit for being able to understand that kind of logic. Mm. 
I wonder, too, if uh, – so it's one thing. It's a parenting issue, but it might also be a teaching issue and a, mm-hmm. and a system issue where right. our schools are trying to get, you know, hundreds of thousands of people through. Absolutely. And any anomaly is – is is difficult. So let's just all yeah. just do it. Do it this way. Everybody do it this way. Well, and the parents also, you know, parents tell me all the time, yeah, I really would like to back off and give my kid more autonomy. I just don't want to do, be the first one to do it because then the school is going to think I'm a negligent parent or my kid is going to be the only one to not have me checking on their grades 20 times a day. Um, and I get that. And at the same time, also schools are set up to reward kids by giving them extrinsic rewards like grades, points, extra credit points, honors, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, the problem is is that what's getting lost in that is the fact that the process is what's more important than the actual product. The learning is more important than the grades. And yet what we do is we reward the grades. We don't reward the learning. And that's, that's incredibly uh, damaging to kids. And, and just tends to set them up to be more and more oriented toward the product and not the process of learning. Oh, wow. Yeah, because the learning will carry them to better results the rest of their life. The grades won't always do that. Right. And and the nice thing is, you know, home should be the one place where their goals should be more important than their grades. And so if we can, you know, kids don't need to hear you say one more time how important their grades are. They know that. They hear it from everyone all day long. So if we could make home be the one place where their personal goals and their what they're learning is actually stressed as important, um, that would go a long way to sort of giving them one safe harbor from the intense pressure of constantly being oriented towards grades. Mm, that's so good. Talk to me, uh, if you had to like wrap it up, Jessica, mm-hmm. in one, just one thing, mm-hmm. I call it the one thing that is the thing that makes the most difference yeah. for all of us as parents to start. Yeah. What's the one thing we should do? Parenting is a long haul job. It is not about parenting for the moment. And in those moments when you're feeling like things are just urgent and crazy and you need to get a little nuts and hover a little too close, remember that your job over the long haul is to make it so they don't need us anymore. And as upsetting as that is for me as a mom, that's our job is to not be necessary. And we need to make kids feel competent so that they can get there on their own. Yeah, work yourself out of a job. Yep. Then they'll come back. Then, then they'll need you, but they'll bring a grandchild. Yep, and they won't be living on your couch. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jessica Leahy, great stuff, my friend. That's awesome. The Gift of Failure is the name of the book. And uh, get the, the full name, just so you know. The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. A great resource for all of us. You can get more information about Jessica on her website, jessicaleahy.com. JessicaLahey.com. Appreciate it, Jessica. Thank you, and keep up the great work. For the rest of us, folks, it's time to start parenting. And remember, we've got to make it so that they don't need us anymore. You're going to work yourself out of a job. Isn't that cool? Scary sometimes. Does that bother you? If it does, maybe that's the reason you don't let them fail. Then they have to live with you forever. We'll take a break, my friends. We'll be right back. Stick with us, learning how to uh, lead those we love most. We'll be right back. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. (laughs) 
Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! The solitude gap. Are you, uh, are you in the gap? Are you not getting enough peaceful solitude? A little place away where you can work your thoughts, maybe meditate, possibly pray, you know, read something that's uplifting, or, or even just sitting there in, you know, nature. I find even when I go on walks, one of my favorite things to do is a walk every day, and yet I still fill my head up with information, with noise, podcasts, interviews, preparing for the next day. We're constantly filling our heads up with stuff. And um, it's probably not helping. And where I worry about this uh, the most is in our ability to actually handle quiet times and quiet spaces. And almost the concept of reverence might be going away where you if you know, if you're not one who maybe goes and, and experiences a lot of uh either speakers or if you don't have a church setting where you're constantly, you know, in a place where you need to sit and listen. It's probably getting hard for you, for your children to learn to just sit still and to respectfully listen. I wonder in the end how that's going to impact our abilities to hear one another, you know. I don't want to sound like an old curmudgeon like, oh, in my day, we always respected everyone. But solitude and your ability to sit silently and think is a it's I think it's an advancement and a step up in humanity. I think your ability to sit in, in a reverent, quiet space at a funeral, for example, and reverently sit there without your phone is going to have to be something we all can do and enjoy it instead of having to run out in the middle of the funeral to answer your calls. So I just suggest to every one of us, me included, yo, I'm talking to me. Are we increasing our ability to sit in the quiet spaces? And the quiet spaces could include, you know, listening to others, going to musical uh you know, events, watching a concert, but eventually reverent places where you're at a funeral or a church where you can sit quietly and actually turn your phone off. The weirdest phenomenon happening in my church is everybody has a cell phone and they're using the scriptures from that they're reading are in their cell phones or their technology. And I think it's creating a big temptation <laughs> Some people aren't getting closer to God because they're not actually reading the scriptures during their lesson. They're checking Facebook status. So watch out and make sure you yourself can do it. One other reason I bring it up is because your ability to sit in quiet solitude, practice on your own, where you can do that by yourself, it will deeply impact your ability to sit in quiet uh, peacefulness as you listen to someone else. The most intimate moments of life should be or could be possibly intimate, soft, quiet moments of solitude where two people can stay in the space together. I think personally your ability to be intimately connected to other humans 
is going to be directly correlated to your ability to sit in solitude and be intimately connected with God or with nature or with a higher power. You want better relationships with another person? Then learn to sit quietly, reverently in connection to your higher power in solitude. You cannot attempt to be something with another human being that you are not by yourself. And that's true in solitude. So, a little challenge for all of us. Let's pick it up. Practice it. Something we can practice this weekend. Find a quiet time. Go on a walk, but turn off the headset. Do something different. Turn off the radio when you're driving. Put your phone away. Million ways to be at peace. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. So when you are sitting there and you think, I'm such a loser, such a loser, what part of you is, is saying that, right? Is that your brain? Is that your mind? Is that your consciousness? Which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up. I call it spirit. What or is it your spirit? What what which? What do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world. I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy. Sure. So your spirit would prompt health. It wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat. That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. You're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart but super creative. Whatever your parents told you – And everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up. To me, that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference. So when I I sit there and I get mad at somebody – and I'm getting more and more mad and I think – and I have to break that person down into little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty and you don't even have a job and blankety blank. The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are – you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here, right? And your job – you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier and more powerful. And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say just look to God. If your God came in, and truly, if if you believe in a God and, and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. Well, but Donald Trump, blankety, blank, blank, blank. And Ted Cruz, holy cow, Hillary, so is Hillary guilty or not? You wouldn't go to there on any of that. None of that would matter to you. 
What would matter? Ah, your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better to serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. That's probably where we'd go. Anyway, it's just my view. Little coach's corner for you. Body, mind, and spirit. Try to distinguish between your spirit and your body and your mind. 